Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. Hope you're doing okay. Dan, how you doing? <laughs> After the internet crapped out, I'm doing much better. We need a drink. We all need a drink. We're going to have a good time this podcast. Whiskey on all of us for those who drink and coffee for those who don't. All right, man. <laughs> Check it. Uh, welcome to our amazing panel of guests. Our very, very patient, amazing panel of guests to so this very special live ver- uh, edition of the podcast. Okay, so we're going to introduce these guests in just a minute. They are coming from all around the Middle East and all the corners of the world through the, and let's try this again, unironically, the marvels of modern technology are sitting around the world, joining us today to discuss shifting regional perceptions in the wake of the Abraham Accords that brought about the normalization of relations between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and between Israel and Bahrain. This is, we hope, the first of many Juanced episodes dedicated to exploring and understanding Israel's newfound relationship with the UAE, Bahrain, and hopefully more countries in the near future. So uh, before we start, we have a few thank yous. We have a few acknowledgments. This episode is being sponsored by Trends Research and Advisory, an Abu Dhabi-based research and policy center blending research with innovation. By the Moshe Dayan Center at Tel Aviv University, Israel's leading academic think tank on Middle East affairs. And by the UAE Israel Business Council, the leading forum bringing together Emiratis and Israelis to build relationships, promote trade, cooperation, and innovation. And by Kennis Tours and Guild Travel, the Persian Gulf states are one by one signing peace agreements with Israel. This new era of acceptance, along with increased stability and security in the region, will enable Jewish travelers to enjoy experiences previously inaccessible. Moreover, visits to the Gulf states will not only offer a glimpse into the region's Jewish past and present, but also the ability to experience history in the making. Guild Travel is honored to be a preferred travel company. They showcase the culture, opulence, history, and emerging Jewish life in the Gulf. They are at the forefront of creating people-to-people experiences for Federation missions as well as individuals and family trips. They cannot wait to share these unique destinations and experiences with you. And, and we cannot wait for tourism to return to this country. Right. So check it. They're doing an event uh, on November 5th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern called Kosherati, a Jewish spin on Gulf Foods, together with Dr. Eli Creel. Dr. Eli Creel is the first person to have started a kosher kitchen in the UAE and the Gulf region. A longtime resident of Dubai, she's recognized the need to make kosher food available. Uh, so basically, she's going to be doing a uh, an event, an online event, uh, talking about the latest fusion of foods and cultures to come from the Gulf region. You'll meet her and uh, and learn about uh, the basis of Emirati foods and discover how it combines with Jewish flavors. So for more information on that, you can uh, check out Gil Travel's website at giltravel.com, and the RSVP information is there. Okay. And uh, although she got kicked off the line, we have a special guest for you today. Uh, so when she comes back, we will introduce her. 
in the meantime. And one last thing before we get started. So Jewett's is listener supported. So if you want to help support us to get better internet connections and other <laughs> things so we continue to produce great content, becoming the contributor today, we promise this won't happen when you're a sponsor. You can sign up on our website to become a monthly contributor or like our co-sponsors today, contact us to sponsor your business or organization. For more information on and past episodes, see our website at www.juance.com. Take it away, Dan. For those who become sponsors, we promise some cool Juanced swag in the near future. So we have a special guest with us today. We would like to introduce the amazing, the elegant, the eloquent, the deputy mayor of the city of Jerusalem and one of the founding uh, founders of the UAE Israel Business Council, Ms. Flor Hassan Nahum, deputy mayor for foreign affairs, international uh, investment and tourism. How are you, Flor? Great to be here. Um, I feel like we've already become best friends with the group. Can you guys hear me? I'm not. I'm not quite sure anymore. <laughs> um, it's like honestly, honestly, Dan and Ben. You know, we could have just carried on. It was fine. We were having a ball. <laughs> <You don't need them. laughs> it was great. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You guys are fantastic. You put together such great fun content, and it's wonderful to be here with what I consider new friends. Every day, I'm making new friends. Um, and we're just so privileged, all of us, to live at this point in history. Little did we know, three months ago, as we were all going about our business, you know, God had such an amazing silver lining uh, in store for us, and that is the hope and the window into what a new Middle East can look like. And this is what we have right now. And the difference between this piece, and I've said this again and again, and, and, and the other piece that we, we've had with Egypt, of course, and Jordan, and of course, the, that piece, the piece with Egypt and Jordan, has been extremely important for regional stability. And maybe we have to look at that piece in the context of its day, days with no WhatsApp and days with no Zooms, um, and days when connectivity was very, very different. We don't know what would have happened in that era had we been in the era of communication that we live in today. So I don't want to judge um, the people of the day, but what I see here is an amazing opportunity to build a real, from the ground up, peace and not just from the bottom down. And, and that is really the secret of, of real peace, people to people. And this is why my long-term, Dor Doran and I, Doran Barak and I, who co-founded the, the, the UAI Business co uh, Council, we've known each other since we were 19 years old. That's a long time ago. Yeah. And um, about a year ago. So, so for Dorian, that, you only met like two years ago? Yeah, say. yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, so then about a year ago, he's been telling me, because Doran's been doing business in the UAE for quite a while now, because his business was always uh, China and Africa facing. And for him, Dubai and Abu Dhabi were always, of course, the hub and the gateway to the east, uh, the logistical uh, and the financial hub. And he was telling me about a year ago, Flood, the new horizon for Israel is the Gulf, is the UAE. That's where it's at. And, and we were talking and talking and talking. In June, we just somehow, we were meeting a lot with the American embassy here in Jerusalem. And something, we felt something was up. Didn't think this was going to happen so quickly. But we really did feel something was, was cooking. And so we created this council, which says, just created, you know, you build it and they will come. And we built it. And then we got fantastic partners on board. Many of them are in different forums. Um, and today we have 2,500 people signed up to our online platform. And what's even more impressive is 
that is 50% Emirati and 50% Israeli. And that is, I think, the big achievement because it's easy to sit here and just get Israelis who are very excited. But to have the other side come and say, we're equally as excited, we're in this with you. Um, it's, and when I, when, I was, when I was in Dubai, I, I felt it uh, from the people that I met, where it was government or new friends, business people, connected people. Everybody was so excited. I didn't have one negative experience from the whole week. And that is something which is incredible. As I was saying earlier to my new friends here, you know, I come from uh, Gibraltar, which is opposite Morocco. My mom's from Morocco. My husband, his family are from Iraqi origins. So for us as Safadi Mizrahi Jews, um, to be living this era of a warm peace, which is where our communities came from to begin with, is something incredible. I am telling people every day, our children uh, will one day say, how were those first days of peace? What did they look like? What did they feel like? And this is exactly what we're doing today. We are creating that window of hope for the entire region. And what we are creating today is the template for the way that peace will progress in the future with all the other countries will join in. We are creating the template. And I couldn't think of better partners than my brothers and sisters from the UAE that I've met. One, every one of them, kind, generous, giving, and so excited about the new era that we're creating together. And so I want to let all the other super fascinating people on this panel talk, but I am extremely excited. I see Jerusalem, of course, as the center of the platform for peace because we have the most diverse society of the whole of Israel here. We have 40% Arabs, you know, and different types of Jews from different countries. We have a very important Christian community. This is where we have the biggest challenges, but this is where we're going to solve those challenges and create the peace for the entire region. So, of course, I'm extremely excited. Dan and Ben, thank you so much for putting this together. Technical difficulties and all. And now I will let my wonderful uh, new friends talk about their experiences. It's wonderful to be here with all of you. Laura, thank, thank you, Laura. So much. Thank, Thank you. you. And you're welcome to, I know you've got some uh, busy evening as usual. Um, you wear many hats and you're busy with all of them, but you're welcome to stay uh, and participate as long as, as your schedule allows you. Uh, so, so in August, we here in Israel and our friends in the Arabian Gulf and many throughout the world were stunned to hear the news that Israel and the United Arab Emirates were set to normalize relations. I was stunned. We were all stunned. Soon after Bahrain joined and on September 15th, the leadership of the three countries met at the White House hosted by President Trump to sign the truly historic Abraham Accords. The announcement, the buildup, the signing, everything since has dominated social media in the news cycle, at least over here. Just last week, the first Etihad commercial flight landed, bringing a delegation of Emirati officials to sign MOUs in agreement just before an Israeli delegation was in Manama making official uh, Israel's relations with that country, and an Emirati delegation came to finalize more agreements. Also, the government of the Knesset over here ratified these agreements. People are legitimately excited about this, about the opportunities, economic, diplomatic, even leisure and social, and they can't wait to go to Dubai to experience this marvel of the region that we're all talking about. I myself am insanely excited, I'm flying tomorrow, uh, to go to Dubai to meet my new Emirati friends. That I've made, uh, <laughs> that I've made, uh, Omar. I wish you were going to be there. That I I've know, made man. 
through, uh, through my activity in the UAE Israel Business Council. For those who are regular listeners of the show, you'll know that I'm one of the founding members and have been active in trying to build this community. And it seems that our Emirati, our Bahraini, and other friends from around the region are equally as excited to get to know Israel and Israelis uh, and even Jews for some uh, people who uh, have not had the pleasure or misfortune, depending who you are. <laughs> so <laughs> for, <laughs> for those slightly in the know, Israel and the UAE and Bahrain have had unofficial but increasingly friendly and open relations for a number of years. Israeli officials have publicly toured these countries. Tweets from leaders of both countries have, have grown noticeably warm over the years. And we know that there was little enmity between Israel and the Gulf Arab states, but nobody imagined such full and fast normalization. Sudan was just announced, and hopefully more soon. So in such a difficult and an unexpected year, with the COVID pandemic, the economic crisis, the global shutdown, the political polarization in some places, uh, to finally have this amazingly positive development seemingly come out of nowhere, nowhere was a very welcome surprise. And for those following the positive developments and announcements of good news as this relationship zooms forward, no pun intended, because we're all sick of Zoom. Uh, <laughs> so as our friend here on this panel, uh, Omar, uh, said in a symposium he delivered recently for Trends, we here in Israel were definitely shocked and surprised by the true warmth and curiosity we're seeing from our newfound uh, friends. And that's why we here on Juanced decided to put together a really special panel of guests. All new friends of ours made sense. The accords were signed to better understand how this all played out and how it was perceived in other parts of the region. We are thrilled to have with us today. And we are thrilled they didn't leave during the technical difficulties. Well, I thought that I was going to leave. Never. <laughs> if it wasn't my house, I would have left. Uh, we have with us today Mr. Omar El Busaidi, Ms. Dr. Najat El Saeed, and Haysam Hassanin. Welcome, you guys. How are you? As good as gold, sir. We're fine. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Uh, so, you know what? Instead of us introducing you, uh, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, why don't we start with you? Hi, Sam. Tell us who you are, where you're from, where you live, what you're doing, and what you're watching on Netflix recently. <laughs> <laughs> so, hello, everyone. I think uh, I'm very excited, actually, to be participating uh, with all of you tonight. And uh, especially it's an event sponsored by an Emirati and Israeli institution. I think uh, this is great. And we are witnessing uh, history in the making in the Middle East these days. Just a couple of months ago, nobody would have uh, imagined uh, that would uh, happen. Uh, so a little bit about myself. So my name is uh, Haysam. I'm a researcher. Uh, I, I specialize on the relationship between uh, Arab states uh, and uh, Israel. And I wrote a lot about that. And I'm very glad to see that some of the ideas that I wrote about it for American policymakers when I was based in Washington, D.C., for think tanks, they uh, are tra translating into a reality uh, nowadays. And I think uh, the future is very fruitful and I'm very optimistic about that. Uh, a little bit about myself. So I grew up in Egypt and then I moved to America where I finished my education. And then uh, one of the interesting encounters I had when I was at American universities is that I met uh, people come from Jewish background for the first time. And interestingly for me, they were studying about the Middle East. Uh, they study Arabic. They travel to the countries of my origin all the time. And they know about the societies I'm coming from, you know, while I had no idea who they are, you know, except they are the opposite side, the other side. You know, I don't speak their language. I don't know anything about them except what I have seen on TV. 
and I read the newspaper. So I said, okay, I'm just going to go and try to learn about these people. And one of the fastest ways for me to do that was just through education. So um, I enrolled in an Israeli university, Tel Aviv University, and I had a fabulous time over there. I learned a lot about the culture, the society, uh, the language, and uh, the experience transformed my ideas, transformed me as a person. And I learned a lot about that. And since then, I have been active uh, uh, in trying to bridge the gap, uh, speak to different people, try to write articles that enhance the relationship between the two sides. And uh, yeah, and I'm very glad to be with you all uh, today. Uh, an Emirati, welcome to the newcomers, Saudis, hopefully the future comers. And the Egyptians, of course, are uh, the old uh, the <laughs> the old comers. Old news. <laughs> and and what, what are you binge watching on Netflix these days? Uh, not much actually. I'm a big soccer fan, so I, only, I watch most of the time the Premier League. Okay, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Najat, how are you? I'm fine. I'm great. So please tell us about yourself. Where are you? What are you doing? Where are you from? And what's your favorite kind of food? Mm-hmm. What's my favorite? What your favorite kind of food? What do you like to eat? Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, well, I am. Um, I'm currently living in, in UAE, and uh, it is a wonderful place to live in. Um, going back to where I'm from, I'm from Saudi Arabia, uh, from uh, particularly from uh, from Medina. It's a holy city, uh, but um, I lived in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh. But before that, I was born and uh, and I lived until I, I spent my childhood in in the states. Then we moved to Riyadh, the capital, uh, because of my dad's work. And then after I finished high school, we went back to the states. Uh, over there, honestly, uh, it was a big uh, turning point uh, to me when I went to the states because um, even though like, you know the living in Saudi Arabia is quite diverse. Um, and it depends on the family themselves. Um, my dad's section is quite open and liberal, but my mother's section is quite conservative. Um, like, uh, because, because of his studies, uh, because of his mingling, uh, with, um, foreign, uh, foreign people. But my mom was quite conservative. So, uh, when I went to the States, it was a big turn. And honestly, I felt like I, this is the first day of my life when I went there. Um, the good opportunity when I went there, it really transformed my personality 180 degrees. Uh, because even though I lived in my childhood, but, but it was only until I reached uh, 10 years old. But over there, I was in a college stage. So, uh, when I went there, I was, uh, I went there, I, I mingled with different nationalities, different religions. And over there, I met a lot of Israelis, a lot of uh, Jewish Americans taught me. In the university, and uh, my classmates were from the, uh, from Israel, and the, a lot of them were Jewish Americans. So I get to know a lot about it, which is totally different misconceptions that we got in in Saudi Arabia through the textbooks, through the uh, stereotypes, through everything. So uh, that that really changed a lot of my views, and also from the other nationalities. So that's why I believe that from that point, that education is more than just getting a degree. Education is where you mingle with uh, with people, uh, with the, and with with developing your personality. 
it's not only a certificate. If it is a certificate, you can get it even from home virtually, especially these days. But the different kinds of people that you get, and this is where your personality develops. Over there, yeah, you know, when you are just close to certain nationalities and certain uh, religions, no matter how many degrees you get, you're still narrow-minded. But I had the chance to to mingle with a lot of nationalities, and I didn't constrain myself like other Saudi women over there to only Saudis, because most of the Saudis, when they go there, they go to the same loop. So even though they have the opportunity to gain education and uh, and live there, I'm not saying all of them, but a big percentage of them just to stay with among uh, you know each others and to visit each others. But I didn't, I didn't constrain myself with that. I mingled with a lot of nationalities. My friends were from all over, from, uh, from, uh, from Europe, from Spain, you know, like Spain, Italy, call it like all Europe and uh, from Turkey, from Iran, from, uh, from, you know, from all over the world. And I wasn't hesitant to mingle with any nationalities and with even other religions. Um, in the beginning, let me tell you frankly, uh, that uh, because of the a, a lot of the misconceptions that we got, for example, when I see like a Jewish person wearing the traditional and religious, I was scared in the beginning. But then after that, I was, you know, I said, what kind of misunderstanding that I had? You know, at that time, uh, when, but, um, and then after that, from my professors, from my classmates, I changed all of this kind of fear that I had and suspect that I had. Uh, honestly, without having the chance going to the States, I will never be the same person that I am with you right now. So yes, I got a degree. A lot, you know, I got uh, two bachelors, I got two degrees. Uh, but, uh, but to me, the true, the true education, was and the sophistication that I got through the, these kind of opportunities. Then after I finished my degrees, um, like my second master's, I worked, I started, I didn't work. Only two master's degrees? Yeah, one in, com uh, in, uh, in computer information system and the other one is in health promotion disease prevention. Wow. And then after I, uh, and I even I had the chance to continue my PhD because my father was, was political analyst in the embassy and all the sons and daughters of uh, diplomats have free uh, scholarships. That's why I get all of these degrees because I'm paid. They pay me every, every single thing. And honestly, I have to thank my government because without them, I will never be able to get all of those degrees and to, to be educated in the best universities in the world. I'm so thankful to, to them for that. And I even had the chance to continue my PhD and they told me, look, we will pay you everything. And all my father's friends at that time told me, go, go for it. I told them, I'm, I had enough of education. I want to work. I went to see the real, real world. I'm not going to be a professional student my whole life, uh, and I need to work because I don't know what I, what I'm going to do in my PhD, uh, what, uh, what I'm going to major because I have very diverse background. I have English literature, I have science, health science, I have a computer information system, and I have health promotion. So I will do my PhD in what? Uh, it's, it will be really disappointing. After you continue four or five, six years, then you say, oh, this is not the major that I want to be. This is, I'm not going to be interested. This is not where I want to work. Uh, so I had the chance to work in the World Health Organization. Uh, mainly, it's called uh, PAHO, Pan-American Health Organization. It, it was based in D.C. 
and uh, I worked there for two years. And then I worked in the in the human resource uh, department. It's called HUD, uh, Housing and Urban Development. Uh, so I spent a couple of years working in the states. Uh, a lot of people told me you had you have the chance to work in the Saudi embassy in Washington D.C. I told them no. I want to be exposed to the Americans. I want to see how those people work. I know I will have the chance to work in the Saudi embassy, but I'm going to be so tightened with the same group. And yeah. I want to see and, and I want to know the Americans. I want to know more than just the students and professors. I want the, to know the true life of Americans. So uh, I had this chance to work five years in the States, six years. And then after that, my dad said, uh, we finished. We have to return back. Where to go, where to go, as many Saudis, Whenever they finish and live for many years in, in the States, they choose UAE because mm-hmm. UAE is, um, is a mix. It's like it's cosmopolitan. It's not mm-hmm. it's not, uh, you know, typical Arab and it's not also typical European or Westerner. So you can choose the lifestyle that you like. So mm-hmm. that's why my dad picks and all of that. All of us encourage him uh, for for this uh, choice. And so it was an excellent choice. Well, from 2003, but we went back and forth. We went to Canada, then we went back to Saudi Arabia, then we returned back here. Uh, so, the, you know, we were, I lived in a lot of places, but the base was uh, UAE, UAE. Right. And then after that, when, I, when we returned back to Saudi Arabia, I had the chance to work in the Islamic Development Bank. It was the Islamic Development Bank in Jeddah. It's like the World Bank in Washington, D.C., but it's mainly constrained for Muslim countries. So at that time, they have excellent, excellent library. I was like spending, like you could say, like 24, most of my time in my free time, I didn't go to the lunch break, I go to the library because I was planning to do my PhD. I said, now I had the chance after working uh, in Saudi Arabia, after working in, in DC, and even I worked um, in UAE before, uh, before I get my PhD, I worked in the media city. Okay, so I said, what? And even when I worked in the, at PAHO and the, at the World Health Organization, I was working in, under the communication and media department. So most of my job was basically between communication and development. And when I work, when I even uh, uh, went to the to um, to Saudi Arabia before going to the IDB Islamic Development, uh, I was working the American Embassy in Saudi Arabia. And I was in the, in the public diplomacy department. Um, but then I had a, an excellent cho- choice in the Islamic Development Bank, and it's more into development. So I mixed development, dip- uh, diplomacy, and communication. And then I start to write my uh, my proposal. Uh, so I go to the library of the IB, and uh, and I, write, I start to write my proposal. I showed uh, my proposal to a couple of American professors whom I met in the American embassy. They told me, your best choice, not the U.S. Since you're doing development uh, for the Middle East and media, Arab media, your best choice is U.K. Honestly, I was afraid to go to, to, to the U.K. because I'm not, because I'm not used to it. I don't know how I'm going to live there. And, hmm? and cause what? the food's horrible. And the food's horrible. Let's just be honest. <laughs> well, it's not the main thing for me. I can find my way for food. And then, um, and I was lucky enough also to meet, uh, the, uh, the, uh, British ambassador and the British ca- council. And they, they, and I, uh, and even they introduced me to a lot of universities in, in London, specifically in London. The, I remember the British, the CG, Council General. Uh, I met him in London. 
I met him first in Jeddah, and then I met him in uh, in London, and he showed me all the universities. He told me, please change from the U.S. Now it's about time to do um, to do the to your PhD here. And uh, the professors, my American uh, the the American professors that I know, uh, gave my uh, my uh, told me that it's better to contact uh, British professors. They told me go to Naomi Sak. Naomi Sak, uh, you know, she's the best professor in your field. I sent her my proposal. She said, go ahead. Go ahead and I, I will, we will do you, we, we have to make an interview for you because your proposal is so interesting. Uh, so what, what did me, you end up writing about? I was, what did you end up writing your PhD about? I was, I was writing about the role of uh, Arab satellite television in, in social development, mainly women's right. development in Saudi Arabia. And so we're going to we're going to come back to that topic because it's uh, an interesting topic that we can tie in here with the changing perceptions. Uh, and what are you doing these days in uh, you're in Dubai or you're in Abu Dhabi? Uh, currently, I'm still in Abu Dhabi. What are you doing these days in Abu Dhabi? Oh, OK, I'm currently doing in my independent studies. I'm working with the now uh, doing a study with the Middle East Forum. Uh, working on uh, the the uh, study about Abraham Accord and uh, the impact of it on Emiratis, especially Emiratis. So this that is the study. That, yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a, I'm I'm gearing here into the social perspective. Uh, from yeah, from different angles. And what's your favorite kind of food? Uh, well, I have a lot of favorite food. It's a very difficult question because, because of uh, the multi background that I have. I like Italian food. I like uh, Persian food. I like Turkish food. I like uh, American food. I like uh, all kinds <laughs> of food. I like Lebanese <laughs> food. I like Egyptian food. Uh, I like uh, Saudi food and where I come from, uh, specifically from the, my West Coast, from Medina. I'm proud of our cuisine. <laughs> Awesome. So, <laughs> so I, want, I, I want to get to this guy with the awesome shirt in the middle. You're going to tell us about that shirt. <laughs> How you doing, man? Guys, sorry, I, I just muted my mic. It's just I didn't want any echo to go through. Oh, or anything, good. You know? uh, yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, what was the question? I forgot. Tell us about yourself. Who are okay. you? Where are you from? Where did um, you get that shirt? Uh, so... Okay, guys. Uh, first of all, you know what? I, I wish I'm not doing my introduction after Dr. Najat because I feel quite embarrassed right now. Like, I didn't do anything with my life. Because right. I'm, I'm embarrassed. So, she's so well accomplished. I'm like, okay, why do you have me here? <laughs> I might as well just go and chill in my South Beach in Miami here. You know, she's awesome. Mashallah, Dr. Najat. <laughs> Thank you, dear. Thank you. I'm lost for words. I'm like, oh, God. I feel like, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if you're going to like what I'm going to say because my my experience, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get to my experience, but let me just say who I am very quickly. So, Umar Busaidi, I'm from the UAE. Uh, currently, as most of you already know, I'm a Fulbright scholar uh, doing my master's in international affairs and intelligence at uh, Florida State. I did my undergrad in marketing at the American University in Dubai. Um, I did do a lot of things on the side as well. I'm also an entrepreneur. So I do have a company in the UAE. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah. I, I also published a book. I'm an author. I published a book called Just Read It. Don't ask me what it's about. Just read it. Just exactly. read it. Thank yeah, you very much. Some people get the pun. Some other people don't understand it. Anyways, whatever. So my point is... Um, 
I, I did my bachelor's and everything, but I was always also an entrepreneur on the side. So I tried setting up an advertising agency, communications, so something close to what Dr. Najat has talked about. And I also heard about her because I used to kind of be like a, I used to go as a speaker to Zaid University and I always heard Dr. Najat's name around all the time. Dr. Najat, Dr. Najat, you know? So I'm telling you, I can attest to her uh, reputation. And uh, also Flora, I think she has some experience in, uh, in communications. So then I did that and then I had a clothing store. I had uh, a shop selling women's dresses and wedding gowns. And it was a horrible experience because I was next to a Lebanese restaurant. Nothing to do with Lebanese food. I love Lebanese food. Good but good. I had freaking pests entering the shop and scaring the girls from the dressing room. And then they, they stopped coming to my shop. And, anyway. and your clothing uh, foray into uh, clothing ended with that. Yeah it, it, yeah, it didn't go too far. I think I should be dressing the cockroaches more than the, the women. I would probably be more successful. Anyways, so then after that, I had a company, a uh, consulting company, um, helping. So it was called Connections Middle East. So literally my job was supposed to connect people from around the world, business people who want to do business in the UAE. And I have a lot of contacts in the Gulf in general. So I would always do the connections. Um, but with the financial crisis hit, it shut down. And then I, um, I closed that company down. But now I have an events company. Um, so this events company, we've been Perfect. around for the last eight years. Perfect okay. for COVID. Make sure oh, yeah. it's not any Lebanese restaurants. <laughs> no, I won't. So we have an events company and in the UAE and we have a branch in Saudi Arabia. So my partners are from Khobar. And mm-hmm. I love my partners. They're awesome. And we did do quite a number of projects in Saudi for the government as well. Uh, we have some projects coming up soon, inshallah. So we're happy with that. And um, uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I, I love my Saudi people. I, I mean, I'm rocking this design. It's from, it's from a brand called House of Sinmar. My friend Hamid Dabur, he designed this. So I'm just supporting. Uh, a lot of people here in the States ask me where I get my clothes from. And a lot of the times I try to support like local, you know, Saudi talents. But the closest... The, that I've gotten with Israelis has been mostly in Mykonos, Miami, <laughs> Ibiza, LA, New York. So I usually party. I don't care. I'm going to stay. Listen, this is informal. So yes, I would hang out and chill with these guys. You meet them in places like this. So I was like, is this what the Israelis are about? Because what we see on TV is a whole different story. But then I would go there and I'm in Ibiza or Mykonos. That's like half of Israel. If you've been in all the places uh, you've listed, you've met half of everyone. Uh, I know. And then when I meet them, I'm like, uh, hello. (laughs) So uh, I had a very different experience with the Israelis in that perspective. But anyways, I'm just going to cut short my introduction. And you were just appointed uh, as a non-resident fellow. Oh yeah, yes. Um, uh, I apologize. I'm I'm a non-resident fellow at uh, Trends. and uh, I, I also I also do have another role. I mean, I'm also a member of the US UAE Public Affairs Committee, which is an offshoot of the of Amcham in Abu Dhabi. I did do a lot of work with them and lobbying work in the Hill up there where Haysam is right now in Washington D.C. And uh, I also was um, a global shaper with the World Economic Forum in Abu Dhabi. So yes, I I also had some yeah, any serious things, guys like Haysam and Najat. Like I'm not. Just crazy oh, and having fun. Let the shirt fool you. I I just veered off a bit. I'm just telling you about my experience with the Israelis. That's why I, I did have some 
very serious positions as well. In, that's, in it's a life. very that's a very unique kind of Israeli who goes to uh, Mykonos in Miami. Those kind of uh, you'll meet you'll meet hopefully inshallah you'll meet very different uh, uh, kind of Israelis I, here. I can't wait to go to Tel Aviv. I heard the scene is different there, so we'll see. So um, take us to. We're going to try to do two things. So we're going to try to weave in the personal and then kind of step out of yourself and we're going to try to reflect on national or regional moods because, you know, this, you know it's interesting. All five of us here, we are from certain places, um, but we're in different places right now. Okay. We're, none of us are in the same places where we're originally from. And uh, uh, some of you guys have also spent a significant amount of time going around to also other places. So you all have uh, different perspectives that I think are very useful as uh, both analysts, but also enrich our experience as people. Yeah. So uh, uh, let's start with uh, Haisam. Um, if, if you want to kick us off, take us to the day before we all found out about this accord. Okay. And you're Egyptian. Uh, originally, you've been living in the States uh, and Egypt has had a peace treaty, a stable uh, peace treaty with Israel for a long time. What is kind of uh, the Egyptian view, if you can give sort of a generic kind of Egyptian view of the region, um, Israel in that place, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, uh, where are the threats coming from? Um, how does, you know, when an Egyptian, you know, the kind of, let's say the kind who reads a newspaper, uh, you know, and is generally aware of what's going on in the region and the world, what is the worldview? Like, who's who's who? Clarify this question before the peace accord, right? Or after? Yeah, before the UAE uh, Israel uh, Abraham Accords was announced. Yeah. Like the okay. day before, the month before, whatever. Okay. So that, the general Egyptian stand uh, view of that is uh, yes, uh, uh, peace happened after uh, war. And uh, it was great that to have peace. Uh, because uh, the country got the chance to uh, develop, to develop a good relationship with the United States, uh, which was the vision of President Sadat back then when he foresaw that uh, the American-Soviet relations is going to be going in favor of the American side. Uh, but uh, in order for normalization to happen, the Palestinian issue has to be uh, solved first. Um, uh, and... Uh, uh, th th this was the main key thing, uh, and not only it was the Egyptian standpoint; it was the Egyptian among many uh, officials in different Arab capitals. You know, right, and I think even 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 your president Sadat, when he came to the Knesset and he spoke, I mean, that was one of the things that he he made very clear. It was, you know, he was one of the first people to stand on that on that stage and say, you know, we're making peace, but our our our, you know, desire is to see a peaceful resolution of the Palestinian issue. Uh, exactly. Was, which was exactly. something that he could say in that position and at that time and people and people listened to it but since then you know it's uh, we haven't seen a lot of momentum in that area so um, I mean that must also affect the, the way that Egyptians view the relationship yes uh, yes I, I was going I was going through it actually I'll take it step by step so yes to start from the official standpoint is the Palestinian issue still not solved so we cannot normalize relations and it cannot get extended beyond the policy level uh, and the little economic relations between uh, the few people from here and there with the approval of the Egyptian government. Uh, the second point is uh, Egypt uh, has uh, lots of intellectuals, uh, newspapers, uh, TV stations and media stations that are broadcasted all across the Arab world. And I would argue even until today, even though things are changing a little bit in the region, but still the media and intellectuals and things like that are controlled by a way or another by the Egyptian side. And uh, so the T 
TV shows on a regular basis highlights the conflict between Egypt and Israel. And, uh, and I think this was one of the key things, you know. So yes, the Palestinian issue is still not solved, but still from the Egyptian-Israeli perspective, the Egyptian side still highlights the wars, the conflict, and how it's going to be continuing. Uh, uh, even though the two sides agree on regional things, you know, President Sisi and Prime Minister Netanyahu agree on uh, political Islam is the major threat, you know, the perception toward the Iran, the perception uh, toward instability and the destruction of states and things like that. But uh, inside the country, still, uh, Israel is still viewed in a certain way. Uh, and this will take me to uh, how is that affecting the country after the peace accord? Uh, this starts, this, I think the peace accord between the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Israel and Sudan is making Cairo had a leverage in DC circles because it is the strongest uh, military. It is the first Arab country right. to sign a peace deal with Israel. And all of a sudden now you have other Arab countries coming into the equation uh, with amount of amount, um, uh, amount of wealth, lots of money, uh, lots of technology. And uh, as we can see, people-to-people interactions are happening and taking place momentarily right after the peace accord was announced. So I think Cairo looks at that and is a, and is a little bit nervous about that. One, how are they going to be preserving their standing among Washington policy circles? Mm-hmm. Uh, second, uh, how are they going to be? Because the government is still skeptical of people-to-people normalization because well, like the goal. Well, why, why is that? Why did people-to-people never happen? I remember uh, years ago, um, and, and Haisam and I were both uh, at one point or another at the Washington Institute. I was just an intern there, but you you actually stayed on as a researcher. Um, and I remember one of the, you know one of the few meetings we had was with um, an Egyptian intellectual. He was a poet, Ali Salem, um, and, and and he's passed away. He was from what I understood, he was a giant uh, you know figure. Um, and and I got to meet him, and he spoke to us, and I actually read his book, I have it here on my shelf, Rehla uh, Israel, um, uh, A Visit to Israel. And, and after the peace work, you read it? Yeah, I read it. And he he got in his car and he drove to Israel and he was going to try to do normalization and it never happened. So uh, do you have a sense why why normalization never happened? Uh, yes, I just want to share with you and my Saudi and Emirati friends a funny story. If you are an Egyptian and you go to Israel, uh, you will always have fa- fun experience when you deal with the Palestinians or Arab citizens of Israel because they will accuse you of normalization, treason, blah, blah, blah. But also one of the first things when they hear the Egyptian dialect, they remember an Egyptian play that was produced in the early 1970s called Madrasa al-Mushagbin, the, the School of Troublemakers. And it's a Netflix, by the way, if you want to see it, oh, yeah. you know. Uh, so once they hear the Egyptian accent, they start repeating scenes, they start repeating different sentences, different jokes from this uh, play. And this is one of the things I used to tell them in the university uh, atmosphere for the socialist and Nazarist and communist Arab Israeli students or Palestinian students in Jerusalem, that, you know, the guy who makes you laugh every day and smile every day is the biggest normalizer. Say, how so? I say, the guy who wrote it is Ali Salem. And he is the guy who came, one of the first Egyptians to come to Israel in 1994 and write a book about it. So just a little bit of a story about that. Uh, uh, so, yeah, so go, go, going back to your, so could, could you say that question again? Because uh, I just was excited about Ali Salem. Well, it was just basically what, you know, what happened that normalization never happened. Yeah. How, like, you know, yeah. Why, why did it never take off? Um, was it an active government effort to stop it or was it just the lack of encouragement or you know how come the momentum we're seeing now uh with emiratis 
were, we never saw in the past 40 years from Egypt, even though okay. you, can, you can literally drive between Cairo and Tel Aviv, you know. I think it's a combination of three things. First, let's start with the people, okay? You have to understand that in every Egyptian, almost Egyptian household, they have somebody they lost in the war against Israel, either in 48, 56, 67, and 73, you know? So this is a trauma for many people. Even when I grew up as a child there, you know, right across the street, I could hear stories about people, oh, this guy lost his dad, this guy lost his uncle, even in my family, you know, in the war, you know? So this is a very psychological barrier for many people. Hmm. This is one thing about the people live. Second, about the media and the intellectuals. Is that, sorry to interrupt you, Haisam. Is that still correct for people who are younger and who never, who don't personally remember the wars? I'm going to answer it through the continuation okay. of the answer. I will get it. Okay. And then you go to the intellectuals, the media, you know, newspapers and media, uh, TV anchors. When they talk about Israel, they tend to talk about it in a certain way and mostly negative. Why is that? Because some of them either come from a Nazarist or communist or social background, you know, who grew up in the heyday of Arab nationalism or those who come, of course, from a political Islamist background. Of course, as you see, they see the conflict through a religious prison. And this is also another thing. And then you have the government. Uh, I think according to the Egyptian government law, if you travel to to uh, to Israel or associated with Zionism, for instance, I think you could get stripped of your citizenship. You could get punished. And there are examples of people who got, got punished because of that. And this is why I applaud the United Arab Emirates, because most recently, right after the accord, right away, they canceled all these kind of laws. You know, they just signed a peace treaty. They said, OK, fresh start. You know, if you are an Emirati citizen, you do business, you deal with Israelis and nothing against Zionism, nothing against anything in the Egyptian case is still have is still existing till today and I think this is a challenge so uh, the answer to your question is people have psychological barrier but also the government and the intellectuals play a role in uh, the continuations of the cold uh, peace or the, the non-normalization thing but uh, among the young the youngsters I would argue yes there are People still remember, but I wouldn't say it's as aggressive as somebody who grew up in the 60s or 70s or even the 80s or even the 90s or even my generation. When we grew up in the early 2000s, the first thing I understood about politics was uh, the, first, the second intifada and how you see Palestinians are throwing stones and Israeli soldiers are attacking them. So this is embedded in the mentality of many people. But uh, the significance of the Abraham Accords is if you have a young Egyptian nowadays or a young Arab in this region who's 10 years old or even 12, 13, 14 years old, and just his eyes are just being open to understand yeah. the region of him. One of the first things he's going to see is Israel is not the enemy. You know, it's political Islam, it's the economic problems the region faces, ISIS, the destruction against minorities, and Israel is becoming part of the solution by a way or another, and other Arab states embracing it. So I think uh, this is a positive thing. That's really interesting. Let, let's stop right before the announcement of the Abraham Accords and, and keep it at that level. I'm curious, you know, you, you, you told us in the intro, you famously, um, as an Egyptian, I mean, you don't live there anymore, but you famously came to Israel and, and studied and you were kind of well known here that you were an Egyptian guy doing a degree at Tel Aviv University. Um, did you get backlash from, from family or friends, either in the kind of American, uh, whether Egyptian or the broader American Arab community that maybe you were a part of? Uh, did people you knew still in Egypt, if you still have family or friends still in Egypt, did they look at you um, differently? Did they stop talking to you? Was there any kind of backlash you received for this? 
I think it happened, uh, like when I decided to come and study in Israel first, it was a secret between me and only my parents, you know, because it's uh, the culture, at least in the Egyptian mentality culture, it's a little bit of a scandal, you know, what's well, a big deal. As I said, as explained, many wars, many people lost their relatives and loved ones and it gets passed from generation to generation. So you cannot just tell your community I'm traveling there. So by the end of my school year at Tel Aviv University, uh, I was selected to be uh, the valedictorian at Tel Aviv University. First, Congratulations. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and I give the speech and they ended up broadcasting the speech live on Egyptian television. You know, wow. uh, imagine all my Arab-American family community members here or even back in Egypt, they just see you on TV uh, with the Hebrew science on the podium, you're standing oh, up. Shit. The no, cat's out of the bag. <laughs> Can we go back? We go in trouble. So it was a little bit ironic, you know, because lots of attacks, lots of backlash, uh, lots of criticisms. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, people asked to revoke the citizenship, you know, uh, close to the government and it created lots of sensitivity. Uh, so you- it was a bit it was a big issue. I think you, uh, you go back to Egypt now, or is it like kind of made it weird to go home? It, it, it made it weird, you know, because like, first of all, your friends are, are going to be very scared to talk to you because you don't understand the government position in that. And how are they going to be responsive to your decisions? And for people there, they will be scared. You know, that's an automatic thing. You know, uh, the, if, if somebody is doing certain things that out of the box, they will be scared to be associated with it. So they would rather not to talk uh, until they figure the whole thing. Uh, and this is again, and this is why I applaud the peace deal between the UAE and Israel, because what I'm seeing, passing laws to combat anti-Semitism, encourages them to deal with each other. You don't see that with other governments. So I really hope they take this route. Najat, what about you? Take us to Saudi Arabia, um, if if you can, um, because you know Egypt is in this one place where it signed a peace treaty, but it did normalize. Mm-hmm. The UAE... Uh, signed a peace treaty, it kind of maybe even normalized before it signed a peace treaty, we can say. Um, and Saudi Arabia is, is kind of in this, you know, uh, you know, kind of one of the things Haisa mentioned is that maybe Egypt is um, kind of sensitive about losing its position as leadership in the world. I'm, my words, not his. Um, and Saudi Arabia has kind of been taking over that role of leadership in their world. My, my sense, you guys can disagree or agree, um, is that all of these moves are a precursor to Saudi Arabia uh, normalizing ties with Israel. I mean, we've, we're hearing the rumors, Sudan, you know, all these things I think are, are building up. And you see um, at least what's translated into English or Hebrew from the Saudi press. We're seeing that momentum. Take us back, you know, maybe from a few years ago uh, and, in, and it, right before the, the Abraham Accords were announced. Um, what is the sense in Saudi Arabia regarding Israel, regarding, you know, regional views of who's the enemy, who are the threats, who are not the threats, who are the allies. How, how do how does Saudi Arabia see the region today? Uh, again, we'll stop before the accords and, and we'll continue with, with after the accords are announced uh, soon. Okay. Um, let me first take you to my personal experience. Then I will take you to the bigger texture. Okay. Um, like uh, for, in, in my in my generation, we didn't face and we didn't live the the war time with Israel. Okay, so I um, I didn't expose what my parents exposed, like the laws of uh, 1967 and the other problems that happened. Like my father's generations, their perspective about this conflict is different from my generation and the younger generation. 
Like in my in my generation, we grew up that the first threat is uh, is Iran. It's not uh, because because it was the Khomeini problem. Because uh, since the Khomeini came, he threatened Saudi Arabia. He so uh, like uh, what year are you talking about here? When when that was in the eighties. Okay. That was that was back in the eighties. Even my classmates, because I was in a private school, and all uh, all my classmates were were from the royal family and from daughters of ministers and like and that's what what we were talking about. And uh, like we never mentioned the word Israel, honestly, at, in class because because uh, Israel is not our first uh, enemy. Like we have our first enemy is the Iranian regime. And we all agree on that. All the Saudi students, our, the only difference, the only differences that we face from the Palestinian students, our classmates. And I remember that time in our, uh, English class, we, ha- we used to have debates in the class. Okay. And, uh, the Saudis, whenever they talk about like conflicts in the region, the first thing that br- they bring up is the Iranian regime. And uh, and the Palestinians say, you know, the first thing is Israel. And we had the conflict. I remembered in the class, uh, like, no, no, at least Israelis are Jews and Jews are, uh, are, are uh, you know, one of the well-known religions. And it is uh, and uh, like the others, they are trying to distort our religion. This is one thing. The other thing, who who are threatening us, who are threatening Mecca and Medina? Who are like doing all the problems and conflicts in in the Hajj and Umrah? It's not the Israelis. It's that that was even back in the early in the late seventies and early eighties. It was all from Iran, and uh, and the Iranian regime. I'm not talking about Iran as a country because the relationship was quite not bad during the Shah period. So uh, you know that from personal uh, uh, my personal perspective and my personal experience, but. Um, but then later on, uh, with the more complications uh, in the in the region, uh, definitely the the generations are more pre- preoccupied with other issues, like for example the employment, the, the better education. You know, like even on me personally, I wasn't like really. I've never never uh, thought of Israel as the first conflict. I had like I'm more interested in my, the social development of Saudi Arabia, like on women's issues. At that time, when I was living in Saudi Arabia, women there was ban in driving. Uh, there was like a lot of ban for women. Now things are much much better. Like all the my dreams came to come true now. But before, when I was living in Saudi Arabia, there are a lot of restrictions. So I was like more like engaged with these social issues rather than the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And most of my generations are that way. Uh, uh, but if I, when I compare it to the previous reg- uh, generations in Saudi Arabia, no, they are different. They know they were saying, and even the hostility that I see and, and mm. uh, the, the aggression that I see in the younger and the older generation, it's, it's totally different than our generation and the younger generation. The younger so, generation, no, they're more open, and uh, but it so varies. Let me, let me ask you, Najat, would would you say that some, like your father or someone from your father's generation, would they then view the region differently? Would they see Israel as one of the bigger threats, or has the older generation also managed to shift its views over time and kind of say, okay, maybe we don't like the Israelis, but they're not our top enemy. They're maybe even not our top five priority. Like, is is there kind of a shift among the older generation too? 
let me tell you, this is a very uh, complicated question. Let me tell you why. Because Saudi Arabia has the most diverse population that I ever seen, even when I compare it to the states. So it varies from which region that you're talking about. So okay. age is a role and also uh, the, the background, the, the cultural background. So people from the Hijaz, for example, is different than people from Najd, is different than the people uh, from the Eastern coast. Okay. So let me tell you, for example, um, if someone who's in, in middle age, middle age or even older from Najd will have, I believe, if he's not like coming from a very, um, like, like very religious background or extremist background, he will be more pragmatic. Okay. He will think, no, Israel is more, is not our first enemy and like that. And he will be think we have other, other problems. So if he's like, well, well educated, westernized and, with, and free from any kind of ideologies, he will be saying that people from the, from the West Coast, for example, because mainly, most likely, they're coming from different cultural backgrounds. They're influenced especially by Egyptians. So there are a lot of them who are not real. So you will say, the, uh, so the older generations and from the West, from the West Coast, maybe they won't like it. They will, they are still, they're very close to the Egyptian mentality. Okay. That I'm t- telling you, this is the general, not, not everybody is yeah. like that. The eastern province of Saudi Arabia, because of their sect, okay, they're mainly Shias, so they are mm. quite uh, influenced by the Iranian regime way of thinking. So, uh, so you will you will see not all of them, of course, but a big majority might be saying no. They are still our first enemy because they're influenced by what uh, the the Iranian regime is broadcasting. Okay, so it's very uh, diverse, but in general, in general, people are fed up of this conflict in general. Okay, that's all over Saudi Arabia. And that's what I was personally thinking of because this problem is not uh, one year or two years or three years or two. it has been for decades. And now there are a lot of complications. And honestly, I will tell you, if you want to know the true views of the majority of Saudis in general, watch the yeah. interview of Prince Bandar. Prince Bandar, you know, he was the mouthpiece for, of the uh, Najat, Najat, for for our listeners who are not familiar with Prince Bandar, uh, who is he? And just give us. Uh, uh, okay, uh, Prince then, Bandar yeah. was the former uh, Saudi ambassador to uh, to uh, to Washington D.C. and he was the former national uh, advisor, national security advisor. Um, but so, but but, uh, but now he um, he's not. He was a former ambassador and former uh, national advisor. Uh, okay. Uh, and, um, he, you know, he was like, uh, you, you can say that Prince Bandar is the, the, the hardcore of the foreign, po- Saudi foreign policy. Hmm. And he was so sophisticated, very shrewd. And he, he, his uh, three episodes on Al Arabiya channel summarized and was basically reflecting most of the Saudis' views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I, I wrote even an article about that. I call it, uh, I called it uh, the Bandar monologue and the Gulf, uh, new doctrine. So the main thing out of his interview to summarize that for the audience uh, are three points. Basically are in the era of freeing ourselves. I'm talking about the Arab, Saudi Arabia and the Arab Gulf. And when I talk about the Arab Gulf, I'm here specifically focusing on UAE and Bahrain and others, but those are the okay. main ones. 
So now we are on the stage of freeing from uh, from all ideologies, okay? And even being sympathizers, sympathizers with the taboo uh, uh, complex like the Palestinian complex. So before before what happens, we know that they are doing mistakes. We know that they are losing opportunities, but we couldn't say that to the public arena. Why? Because they are our brothers, they, uh, you know, under the name of Arabism or Islamism. Uh, you know, we are trying to cover. But deep inside, we know that they are mistaken. Now we are in the stage of freeing ourselves from all, from being apologists. Okay. This is number one. Number two, now we are in the stage of tra more transparency and honesty. Because if before we can afford being nice and apologize to them under the name of brotherhood and under the name of whatever, now I couldn't afford it because I am in critical a critical position. I have a lot of uh, problems. I have, I, I have, uh, you know, I'm surrounded by the national, our national security is threatened by the Iranian regime, by the crazy Erdogan. Okay. By, by a lot of threats and by also some internal, uh, you know, internal problems in, in the Arab region. So I don't have the, the time for you to keep losing opportunities. If you're going to be cooperative with me, I'm going to help you, support you. But if you're gonna be losing opportunities and you're gonna uh, you're uh, and you're gonna fight among each other within uh, within yourselves, you know, and fight for power and money and uh, and uh, and you have a lot of corruption, how can I help you? I don't have the time and the leisure that I I have. So this is number two, uh, the, uh, you know, number two result of the interview, Prince Vander. Number three, we have now a new doctrine in the Arab Gulf. What is the new doctrine? A doctrine is basically now because we are younger countries, you know, before we yeah. were like kind of followers to the older Arab countries because they, they, they have more experience. They are older in, 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 in years. Uh, so now we have our own, uh, doctrine, which is basically political pragmatism and, uh, patri patriotic nationalism. This is versus Tunisianism and Arab nationalism and Islamism. Okay. There's, I want to highlight there's a big difference between Islamism and, and, uh, and Islam. Okay. Islamism is basically you're turning the religion, peaceful religion to an ideology and you're using this religion for political agenda. Okay. While Islam is basically like any religion, you know, you practice your rituals. And it's peaceful. Okay. Why now most of the people, most of non-Muslims think that Islam is not peaceful because those political Islamists who are playing with religion for their own political agenda. Okay. Okay. This is our problem. So now we have our own Arab Gulf doctrine. Okay. So we, you know, we we're not followers anymore. Now we are establishing these So, so we're going to come back to the issue of Islamism in a second because I think that's going to be a whole round of topics. Um, and we're going to get to Omar in a second and uh, the view from the UAE. Uh, Haisam, you wanted to just add a comment on what Najat was saying? Yes, just a quick two comments. Uh, and I get said, I think uh, I, I totally agree with here. And I think one thing the Palestinians are missing these days, they are missing two things when they look at the region around them, especially when it comes to the Gulf. One, they ignore the fact that uh, whenever their Arab brothers in the region are having issues with 
they go form relations with, you know. Uh, so uh, Arab Gulf states have issues with the Iranians, have issues with Hezbollah, have issues with political Islam, have issues with Turkey. They just go right away and form relationships with them. And this is totally makes sense. Uh, doesn't make sense. Uh, the second thing, uh, also in the age of social media, where everything is seen innocently and videos could be posted right away. So maybe Gulf leaders back in the 70s and the 60s used to understand and used to know and hear of certain actions and certain uh, slogans the Palestinians say about them, and I mean negative ones, you know, but since the local population in the Gulf didn't see that directly, the leadership in the Gulf maybe didn't worry that much. Okay, we forgive them, or since nobody knows about it, it's between us, you know. Nowadays, in the age of social media, when a young Gulf citizen who patriotic and proud of his country, proud of his flag, proud of his leadership, and he sees Palestinians burning the flags of his country, burning the pictures and images of his leadership, who, in the culture over there, they respect them so much, and they respect their flags, mm-hmm. and they have their own nationalism too, and they should be respected. And Palestinians just do uh, accu- uh, humiliate and talk about it in a very negative way and they start asking you know I will use a, a little bit of an example just look at what happened with the Emirati officials uh, or the Emirati delegation who visited the Al-Aqsa mosque and how yeah. the Palestinian treated them and talked to them you know while you have Turkish delegates all the time go there you know why do you deal with the Emirati delegates like that and you deal with the other Turkish delegates in a total different way and you welcome them and you don't mistreat them and I think uh, this is something uh, is going to be uh, developed more and I think in related to Egypt by the way this is one thing the Egyptians uh, I would say how, how to phrase it I think uh, for years the Egyptian diplomatic uh, missions that used to visit Tel Aviv used to be scared and very scared of the Palestinians to be there to attend political events to even be shown when they go to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and they used to hide you know they didn't want to speak so nobody hear the Egyptian dialect so nobody comes and attack them I think was it Hassan, was, it, was it an issue of, of embarrassment or safety yes an embarrassment embarrassment and of course safety but I wouldn't I would say it's more of embarrassment because also in the mentality of an Egyptian diplomat when he goes there uh, in college he studied terrorism and Egyptian nationalism and how he saw Israel as an enemy now his government asking him to go in a mission to the opposite side still he sees it as an enemy but he has to fulfill his diplomatic duty and his government duty you know but also in the meantime he sees the Palestinians and he sympathizes with them and he agrees with some of the ideas they have you know so it was like a combination of uh, everything and I think this is something the Palestinians need to take into consideration when they deal with the Gulf and, and one last observation and I noticed it uh, for years, Egyptian leaders have been attacked. You know, uh, Anwar Sadat is a very hated figure among the Palestinians. You never see with Palestinians and you see them praising him. And for Egyptians, I'm very surprised. We call him the hero of war and peace. Yeah. You know, and he was the one who succeeded to get the Egyptian land back through diplomacy and things like that. You know, Palestinians hate him. Uh, the interesting thing I see is at least, and I don't know if this is a positive trend or not, and how it's going to be developed in the future, Palestinians never apologized for cursing and attacking Egyptian leaders. With Gulf leaders, this is a little bit changing, you know. Right after the Abraham Accord, we saw Palestinians all over against that, but we started to find some voices that talk about it and then try to tune down the rhetoric and say uh, they are brothers. And this is maybe because of the money, the financial support. So I think this is an area to uh, to watch out for because the Egyptians didn't have that leverage over the Palestinians. I don't know how the Gulfis are going to be using that, uh, especially the competition with the Qataris as well. You know, I'm trying to imagine a future scenario when Abu Dhabi goes to Tel Aviv uh, and have a diplomatic mission there and they start participating. And unlike, I would call it, I wrote it in one of my articles, unlike inactive Egyptians and Jordanians, I'm sure the Emiratis are going to be active over there. 
So what's the counterbalance from the Turkish uh, embassy there? Uh, how are the cadres are going to be escalating against that? And how are the Palestinians are going to be finding themselves between yeah. both sides? So I'm curious. I'm curious to hear Omar's perspective. I mean, I'm I'm sitting in my house in August. Uh, I don't remember the date exactly, and I, you know, we're all like COVIDed out, and we don't know what's going on, and and life is gloom and doom. And the TV comes on, and my wife basically calls me from the other room. She's like, "Penny, you got to come see this." So I walk into the room, and it's like UAE declares you know normalization with Israel historic accords. And I was like, on the one hand, wow. On the other hand, that's not really surprising to me that that was going to happen. Um, you know, I've heard two perspectives here from 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 different areas of the region. What what was your perspective uh, coming from a uh, you know from the UAE? Um, okay, again, uh, would you like my perspective or like the street? Both, both, both. Okay, uh, so from my perspective, to be very honest, I was not surprised at all. Uh, number one, but number two, uh, uh, the reason I was not surprised is because. Um, a lot of, you know, one of the reasons that uh, Dr. Najat said she moved to the UAE is it's very cosmopolitan. And the truth is there were lots of Israelis in the UAE just with a different passport. Right. And if they were comfortable enough with you, depending if they knew your personality, and I don't know, for me, for some reason, they were very open with me and they just told me, yeah, you know what, hey, I'm also Israeli and American. And the number of Israeli Americans is like, you know, we have registered in the UAE, if I'm not mistaken, around 150,000 British citizens, around 70 or 80,000 Americans, out of which, you know, just imagine how many of them are Israelis. Yeah, there's about half a million Israeli Americans out there, just so you know. There you go. So really, I I want to be out there to tell you like, oh, it wasn't, it was like that shocking. It wasn't, it was already happening. I mean, for decades, I'm talking about decades. Now, I also, again, the reason why for me, I'm not maybe the best sample size, because I went to a private school my entire life. I grew Mm -hmm. up in a very metropolitan environment, very diverse environment. So again, I was exposed to them. So I do already have lots of Jewish friends, but then also then, you know, some of the Jews, Jewish friends that I have came out and told me, oh, actually, by the way, I'm also Israeli and uh, and then they told me, oh, their name is actually not this, but it is this. And I was like, oh, I didn't know. Why did you have to? T- why did you just tell me? I didn't have. A-. You know, they were all like, we were not sure or we're not, you know, whatever. This is from me. Okay. Now, on the street, um, uh, I agree with Dr. Najat again on the same point that, you know, we grew up. The major threat for us was I- I- Iran. Like, like on our borders, it was mostly Iran. And we even saw, going even going back to when you were a kid. Yes, and I'll tell you this: the major reason, and if we were to be even more open, and there, these things are out in the news. There's been several people who uh, we actually were able to catch that were spying for the Iranian government, hmm. and the UAE was able to take out people either from the police force, even in the in the army, that were yeah. You can find all these things are, are in public. Um, so. So that was actually our major threat. We never heard of Israel trying to, you know, we did always see that this was the issue there. Yes, I'm going to be honest. When we grew up, I mean, you watch the news, you read the newspaper, there's always that rhetoric, you know, Israelis occupying Palestinian land, you know, the bulldozing. You'll always see the videos of those bulldozers going through and pushing down the houses. Yeah, we knew this. And then also Palestinians living in the UAE, they would tell us stories about how, you know, one day they woke up and then there was, there was a family, there was an Israeli family, 
in the house and they were like, what's going on? So they were telling us stories like this. Like we grew up with those stories. So now it, 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 there was this whole thing. And, you know, as Dr. Najat mentioned earlier about Arabism and, and you know, uh, you know, there are Muslim or Christian brothers and sisters and all that thing. But then uh, at the same time, it wasn't something we ourselves could have ever experienced or anything close to that. Or, you know, because in the end of the day, you come to the UAE, Dan, you're going there tomorrow. And you see how how majority of how everybody lives, whether they're Emiratis or not Emiratis, it's a very safe environment. It's very safe, and and uh, you know some people like to say it's a bubble or whatever they whatever because really you never you could you could leave your phone on the table, go to the restroom in a restaurant, and come back; it'll still be there. This I don't is, think I'm going to do that though. <laughs> I'm telling you, it is. You should, do it. You should try it out. <laughs> you should try. You know, put a fake phone and see if it's still there or not. You know, like yeah. I don't know. Ask uh, maybe someone, Doctor Najat, if if they can tell you that. So for me, that's that's how uh, it, it, we grew up. And then and then I told you, the more traveled we we, we became, because a lot of us um, uh, who got a chance to study overseas, etc., we did met, meet Israelis, and you know, they didn't have a gun on our head. We were chilling and we were partying with them and we're having a great time. So now this is this is it. Now I'll tell you from a professional perspective. I worked for different government agencies in the UAE and I already knew 100% the deal was going to happen with Israel hmm. because you could see Israeli delegations coming in. You could see Israeli businesses being signed in for certain contracts. And I was like, oh, okay, it's just a matter of time. And then... I mean, I don't understand why anybody is even surprised. Israel was going to take part at Expo 2020. Right. They were going to be there for six months. The, you know, before even the ministers were, before the ministers came, Israel already confirmed uh, two or three years ago that they were going to take part. There was a huge uh, piece on the paper that Israel's going to take part. So obviously the flag is going to be there. The Israelis are going to be there. So this was, okay, the government already prepared us. And also, let's not forget, the government was very smart with how to kind of like if there were people who were brainwashed with a certain narrative from before about, you know, maybe Israel was this uh, aggressor or whatever. Uh, we had the Ministry of Tolerance set up. I was actually already shocked. I was like, why in the world do we have a Ministry of Tolerance? The UAE, it's already tolerant. We have all the people tolerant. all over the world. We have all the nationalities, all religions. I was like, why do we need that? I'm like, this does not make sense. We're the last people that need a ministry of tolerance and coexistence. We have every. I'm like, that if you are not somebody with just bare common sense, like the basic common sense, then you definitely did not know that we were definitely going to sign a deal with Israel because that's, that's what it was. And then, you know, the Pope being invited. So the Pope was coming. Definitely a big rabbi is going to come to the UAE too. So there was, there was all this. I mean, look, if, it, if they were targeting certain people who were really like that naive and did not know what's going on, then it worked for them. I hope it did. But with people like us, we were just like laughing. I was like, this is probably, honestly, in my opinion, I don't think it's a very useful ministry because really <laughs> we, we are already taught. I'm telling you, we're already taught. And, and we have strict laws in the UAE. If I go and say to somebody, or oh, you uh, uh, Palestinian, or oh, you Hindu, or oh, you this, 
In the UAE, we have strict laws for that. There's already there's already a fine imposed, like 100,000 dirhams plus, I don't know how many years in prison. If you say something, not about anti-Semitic, any, anti-anything, xenophobic or your or the race, religion, anything, if you, really? offline or online. If so you, how does that like come in? Where, where's the line? Like if I say like, I don't like Palestinian food. No, no, that's... Yeah, uh, they, they make... Uh, no, that's... that's yeah. How can, I know it's good food. Saying like, when do, like it's, it's like if you say something. Clarify if you say something malicious about somebody based on their ethnic, uh, religious, uh, yeah, you know, gender, whatever it might be, that is a, a an so, offense, criminal so, offense. So let me let me tell you this. If for example, if you said something, uh, you know how there's a let me stick to Islam, and somebody is Shia, and you're mm-hmm. if you say something. Just because somebody is Shia, even though, for example, the major big power, th- this whole issue between Iran and the Saudi Arabia, and we you know we're like in with Saudi Arabia and all that. If we say something against, we will get in trouble because they are Emirati Shias, and it's fine. Like, you know, to each with their own. You you know, you believe in this, you believe in that, but you're supposed to respect it. That's the whole point of coexistence. I mean, so if you do say, and there are some people that have been caught who are either uh, saying something against a certain nationality or religion or something, whether online or offline, they would get in trouble. This is what I love and respect about our... Uh, so it's not because only putting now anti-Semitism laws, uh, you know, as, as Haysam mentioned, but also we were like this against anybody who said anything about anything. Because I grew up, I'll tell you, I grew up in school. I had Egyptian teachers. Uh, I had a, a massive back surgery when I was 21. My doctor was Iranian Shia. Okay, the nurses were like Hindus and Christians, you know. Um, I, I mean, I, I have my education. My professor is from Israel. I told Dr. Namanagar. So h- how can I have something against anybody with any religion or any faith when they are either healing me, educating me, taking care of me, befriending me, having fun with me? This is, this is what it is to be from the UAE. Interesting. So, I mean... W- w- Outside of, you know, for those of us who don't speak Arabic and for those who don't have access to, uh, you know, the, the array of Arab satellite television, um, we kind of see glimpses of Al Jazeera, right? That's yeah. kind of like the famous one. Al Jazeera, for those who don't know, is based in Qatar. And, and, and maybe uh, one or, or three of you can talk about kind of the dynamic with Qatar because it's a, kind of in a different place where, where you know, the UAE and Bahrain are. Um, so what would have been the view of Israel? You know, you say that there's a society that ever since you've been a kid, at least, has been very tolerant and preached tolerance and even stopped people who were being intolerant. Yeah. What would you have seen on TV growing up? Um, for, the, for the Emirati, who's not in a private school with, with people from all over the world, for the Emirati who didn't travel the world and go to university, what would have been the view of um, of Israelis, you know, uh, growing up. Yeah, well, okay. It's interesting that you, because you brought up Al Jazeera and, and I'll be honest, look, you know what? Uh, first of all, I don't watch Arab news. And the reason is, I, I don't know, I don't like the way the content is delivered in Arabic at all. You know, I, I don't like to address that audience or whatever. And I do feel there's some sort of a biased narrative that comes out of stuff like that comes in. And I'll tell you why. Watch Al Jazeera Arabic and watch Al Jazeera English. Mm. It's not like Al Jazeera English is too far off from Al Jazeera Arabic, but Al Jazeera Arabic, and especially they have this Al Jazeera Bashir, which has like a use of Qardawi there, like goes live and says all his stuff. And I was like, what? Because in Al Jazeera English, they don't put that stuff. You don't see the same. 
So imagine all those people that you, like you just said, Dan, the ones who did not go to private schools, the one who did not study overseas or not exposed. You know, I love what Dr. Najat was saying, how she put, she made sure she does not put herself in a closed environment with certain people. She wants to expose herself with people from everywhere. So those people, I do pity them because, yeah, they do have one sort of narrative. And uh, also you have to know that one of the biggest enemies that we were fighting, forget Iran, it was the Muslim Brotherhood. They infiltrated our system in a big way. And uh, particularly the curriculum in the government schools and the UAE as well. So the government, like, you know, once we took them out of their roots and took, the, uh, took them out of their holes, uh, they did a massive, you know, you could say like sort of like educational revolution in the country with the curriculum and everything else. So, yes, I, uh, I think, again, maybe, you know, with the whole the Ministry of Tolerance and stuff, this was kind of maybe targeted to them, not to the people like us who went to, who were fortunate to go to private school. And and look, we were luck, we are lucky. And I I, I feel um, you know sorry for my friends in Saudi Arabia and Egypt because Egypt's got like a hundred and something million population. Saudi Arabia is like thirty million, but we're like a million. So it was easy for us to kind of quickly get in there and fix it up, and everybody is ready. Do you think? Um... Because it's so small that it can, I mean, obviously because it's so small, it can implement such changes much faster. Absolutely. Um, you see it, maybe this would be an interesting question for, for all three of you. Um, is the UAE seen as sort of kind of like the R&D lab of the Arab world today, socially, technologically, economically, religiously? And this is going to lead to the next question. Like, um I'm curious as yep. as to if the is the UAE seen as an outlier or is it seen as the R and D hub? I would say yes for both, but then I'll let Dr. Najat and Hassan continue. I think Omar, I think I think Hassan wanted to say something. No? Please, uh, just like what Omar said, I, I agree with many things he said about the United Arab Emirates. I recently was there for almost like eight months, and a uh, few things that really surprised me, because also another thing, if you grew up in Egypt and you tend to watch the drama and the TV stations, you look at the golfies in a certain way, you know, uh, through, I'm a big TV guy, you know, so TV shaped my views about many things around me in the region, you know, uh, so uh, w- when I first made the decision to go to the United Arab Emirates and live there for a bit, uh, the first question, two questions, you know, how are they going to look at you as a because we always hear golfies tend to treat Egyptians in a certain way. And second, also, I have uh, credential, educational credentials from Israel. And to my, my surprise, the two of them did not affect that. Uh, I still remember... Um, one of the things that really surprised me when I went to the airport in Abu Dhabi, you know, the guy just said, welcome, even greeted me in English, you know, stand my passport. And I was in right away. Even when you go to restaurants and there is an Emirati person comes, uh, you just, it happens you coming to enter the restaurant and he's entering the restaurant. He said, no, no, please go ahead. You know, even uh, one time I remember I was, I finished work and I was in the elevator and I entered the elevator. There were many Emiratis there dr- dressed in the traditional dress. Of course, you could tell from my curly hair and the style that I'm Egyptian. And they started to sing me uh, Egyptian songs, you know, the very, it was like the very funny ones, you know, but I didn't them. I didn't greet them. I don't know them, but they just they could tell I'm Egyptian and they sing to me in uh, in my local dialect. You know, yeah, you know, Aysam, I want to just say it's because look, with Egyptians, we love them because they're either like they're, they're jokes. They're, they're, you know, yeah, they have, they have sense of humor. humor. Exactly, they have a nice sense of humor. Like no matter how serious <laughs> and how crazy it is on Egyptian streets, 
they still make jokes about it. Like all our memes on our phones and Instagram and everything. It's always like some Egyptian uh, yeah. comments, you know, Adri mom and, you know, whoever. I agree. I agree. And even like last January, I still remember, I was just reading the newspapers and I found that the pest alone, the United Arab Emirates, that is going to criminalize and uh, it could lead even to discharge from the country if you attack another uh, religious beliefs. Of, uh, of, and I was like, what? Am I, am I living in an Arab country now? You know, and it was like, a, it was an amazing experience for me that I went there and I witnessed such things because it changed my views and it gave me some hope about the region and things could be changing. Uh, and in regards to Israeli Emiratis, uh, uh, I think in my personal experience, I was lucky also to witness some of the relationship and how it was being developed. And I think one thing I appreciated about the Emirati culture and Omar said it, Emiratis are like one million tiny minorities, so a small number. So this is easy for them and makes them flexible. But it's all about respect and appreciation, you know, and I was very surprised, you know, they, they always respect those who come to their country, no matter the religion or ethnicity or how they look like. And they appreciate the services and the contributions they are making to the society. And this is why no survival that many people want to go there and continue to live there uh, for the rest of their lives, you know. And I think they're trying to do things, something in the United Arab Emirates law to give citizenship to people to stay longer if you're loyal to the country and you like it. So just, yeah, uh, just a few thoughts. I had one thing uh, on um, uh, Hassan's point. You know, Dan, you need to understand one thing, guys. In the UAE, we have a very, 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 I believe, unique relationship between our rulers and the people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it, it's almost, a, it's parental leadership. Like our leaders, we look at them as equal as our parents. I'm telling you, it's really crazy. Like mm -hmm. how we look at them, we mm -hmm. really, really love them. And even the way our leaders address us, they say, Iyali, like my children, you know, Iyali, Iyali, you know, and they talk to, by the way, a lot of the times talk not only to the citizens, even to the rest of the people living there, because their leaders really do appreciate the rest of the people that live there. You know, um, even Abu Dhabi was, uh, there was a, the, the architect was, uh, you know, Egyptian as well, who played a big role in, in helping to design uh, Abu Dhabi. So you're talking about, uh, uh, and even if you look at the minister, Zakir Naseba, who's originally, you know, comes from Palestine as well. And, you know, is made minister and so we're not ashamed to talk about these people who played a huge role in developing our country so again when our leaders have they ask us to behave in a certain way to behave as global citizens with global values and principles we make sure that we would be the best versions of ourselves when we meet people from other places because if Haysam or Nakhunajat now goes and says to the police or to the sheikhs that oh there's this Emirati, Ahmed, Umar, or whoever that was bad or rude to me, trust me, they will take action against me. Interesting. Najat, what, how do you feel about, um, like, is there kind of a sense maybe in, in the Saudis that, like, that the UAE is kind of like your R&D hub of social, political, religious kind of trends and kind of, okay, let's let them do it first, then we'll see how it goes, and then we'll kind of, you know, take it from there? They're kind of that kind of feeling. Uh, well, it is uh, it is more than that. Uh, let me tell you, I'm not gonna say um, um, that changes um, are um, are happening in Saudi Arabia um, is driven out of UAE, but it, the UAE has a big influence. Honestly, the influence, the main influence, uh, and that's what the even the government, the Saudi government, recognized. They felt they are losing a lot of the fortune of the country. The fortune of the country is the people. So I'm, Saudi Arabia is paying billions of dollars 
to educate Saudis in the best universities in the, in the world. And then most of those graduates, instead of going back to Saudi Arabia, they go to UAE. If they choose to be, to go to any Arab country, they will definitely choose UAE. They won't go anywhere else unless they choose, for example, to stay in the States or in Europe. That's something else. But if they want to go back to the Middle East, most of them go to, uh, go, go to, uh, UAE. So here, like the government starts to think, uh, what, what I'm going to be doing in order to change all of that. Uh, so, and when we are blessed and have MBS, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, okay, Mohammed, Prince Mohammed bin Salman already has the vision, okay? He has the vision, but when he wants to implement it, he should be seeing another country that already implemented it, okay? So he implemented, uh, when he tried to implement it, he go and uh, see the role model of UAE, and he wasn't even embarrassed to say that. He said, "Since uh, you know, I was uh, I was like uh, uh, like uh, back many years ago. Um, uh, I always say that Mohammed bin Rashid is the role model, and I want our country to to follow the same model." He wasn't even embarrassed to say that. He said he said that in in a, in a conference. Uh, so um, so because they see it. Before, when we talk about the United States or Europe, they so they keep saying to us, "Those are you know far countries with different cultures, with different religions." But now we have a successful country, and it's implementing all of that. And it is not only Arab; it is an Arab Gulf. So they are close from us geographically, uh, culturally, religiously, traditionally. So why we we don't try to be this uh, follow the same path? Since they're doing that, so um, and um, and it worked fine in Saudi Arabia. A lot of things happened. You know, years ago they said if we allow women to drive, there there's going to be a lot of backlash. If we open up the country and we open movie theaters and plays, you know, the people will backlash. But they opened up the country. Nothing of this happened at all. Things went smoothly. And thank and thank God we have such a neighbor to us like that, because I always believe. That, that the countries get influenced by, by, uh, by their neighbors. And we are lucky enough to have, uh, to have uh, such a neighbor. But I want just to please comment on Al Jazeera because yeah, I wrote yeah. a lot, a lot about Al Jazeera. Uh, Al Jazeera, basically, let me tell you, you know, um, you know, in the Arab world, whenever you want to get a legitimacy, you go and do it through two things. Okay, which is I consider it as the outdated ideologies or identities, which is Arab nationalism and Islamism. Okay. After after the coup that happened uh, in, in in Qatar back in '95, uh, when the, when the uh, when the when the son uh, Hamad bin Khalifa rebelled against his uh, his uh, father. Okay, a lot of Arab countries and mainly Saudi Arabia and Egypt and other Arab countries didn't believe in him. So he wants to prove his legitimacy. And in order to do that, what he will be doing, he, he started to think about an Arab satellite television. So he brought a lot of a lot of uh, scholars or you call them experts or whatever, who are dominated by the ideologies of Arab nationalism and Islamism. So basically, those who are running the, uh, the uh, Al Jazeera are not from the Gulf. 
and, and, and then are not Qataris. The Qataris are only paying the money, but the back brain of, uh, of Al Jazeera is basically, uh, as you see, Palestinians, uh, Egyptians, and Egyptians are mostly, you know, are from the Muslim Brotherhood. And, um, you know, all of those people who are coming from ideologies. That's why when we, as people from the Arab Gulf, see it, we see it as a strange uh, satellite television because it's not representing uh, any of our um, any of our values as, as uh, you know, as a, it's like a strange. What are, and they are, you know, in the Arab, in the Arab Gulf, as, uh, as Omar said, we do respect a lot our uh, our governments. You know, we think of it as as a member of our, of our family. We're not doing that because we, of because out of fear, because we think like a lot of people say. Uh, do you agree with the with the the name of the nationality? A lot of Arabs are asking me. You're named after a, a Saudi uh, after a royal family. I tell them I'm proud because I grew up with those people. I never felt that uh, my classmate, classmate is, a, is a princess or he's, she's arrogant or showing up. We were like laughing together, joking together, like members of our family. So when they call me Saudi, okay, so fine. I'm not, I'm not offended by that. So uh, this kind of concept is actually uh, not understandable by even many Arabs. They think we are so subordinate. They, they think we are we are we are like obeying or we are getting along with our royal with our governance because out of fear they couldn't you know understand the respect and um, and the intimate relationship. Al Jazeera didn't respect this kind of value. So you see a lot of insult against our rulers. This is not an Arab Gulf tradition. When you insult the ruler, it's a, they call it freedom of, of speech. We call it insult. We call it disrespect. This is against our values. So nothing of Al Jazeera re is representing is basically representing the Arab Gulf. That's, you know, we tried to be apologists to it in the beginning. We tried to say, okay, let us handle our own brothers. They are from the Gulf. One year, two years, three years, four years. And then we are, we are fed up. That's why now there's no diplomatic relations in the 2017, but it didn't come out of a sudden. It came like it was accumulated throughout the years. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, all what, it, you know, now most of the people didn't understand what is behind Al Jazeera. Now they try to understand it, but I boycott Al Jazeera since 2003 because I noticed that their aim is not only a media. They're trying to overthrow the regimes in the region and to, to substitute it with Islamists, radical Islamists. So what happened in the Arab Spring, I was predicting that and I wrote about it back in the early 2000s. And I, it wasn't a surprise to me when it happened in what is called the Arab Spring. I said, those people are not looking for democracy as they're trying to deceive the people. They're not looking for freedom of speech. They want Islamists to rule. And that's why I'm, as a woman uh, and Arab women and Saudi women who fought all her years for, for women's rights and women's empowerment, I don't want this to happen. That's why I was against Al Jazeera because it will, it will uh, damage everything I'm, I'm running and I was looking for. I don't want radical Islamists to rule us. Uh, you know, this is not democracy. I, I would rather, I'm happy with what I have. We are the mentality of the Arab Gulf, just to distinguish it from others. We are 
evolutionary. We have evolutionary mentality, not revolutionary mentality. We like what, to what, progress. What's your, sense, Najat, what's your sense of the, if, if it was possible, and maybe it is possible and we're just not aware of it here because, you know, I think our concept of, you know, like we said, and we've talked about this uh, privately, Omar and I were talking about this privately and we've talked about this a little bit in this session, um, concepts of, of government, legitimacy, democracy, you know, we often hear, um, and, and certainly in the West, approach democracy and legitimacy from certain con- constructs and concepts. And you guys are saying, um, you know, in in the Arab Gulf, at least, because of the tradition of monarchies that have a different kind of connection. This isn't like a dictatorship, you're saying. This is like a, more of a a parental type of relationship. If you ha- If you could take a poll a real honest anonymous poll of everyone how many people would be happy with you know the kind of lifestyle and the kind of relationship between the people and the and the government right now in saudi arabia we're talking or yeah. in general in, in saudi, saudi arabia. arabia in saudi yeah. arabia um you know honestly from from uh, uh, i haven't done a study i haven't conducted a study about that but i'm telling not- i'm, I'm, I'm yeah. going to tell you from my own uh, perspective out of that um like uh, um like i i talked even to shiites i talked to different uh, to different uh, you know population in saudi arabia all of them they're, they're saying even the ones who are against who are not 100% with the government they want the government why because they are, they, they know they will never get the stability that they're going to get with the current government. Okay. Saudi Arabia is so big country. And honestly, I'm not saying that out of, you know, being nice or, you know, the fact that it was united in one country is a miracle. King Abdul Aziz did a miracle because this country is so diverse. When you go and visit the West region of, uh, of Saudi Arabia, it's not related in any way to the East province culturally and socially. The fact he united it in one country, this is a miracle. So God forbid, God forbid, if something happened, you know, anything politically, it will be a disaster. There will, it will be divided. It will be a chaos, not only to Saudi Arabia, to the whole region. Because what this government is doing, nobody can appreciate it unless he is from the country. So I met a lot of people are saying, even if we dis- disagree in, in certain points, we want them because this is how we can gain our respect. This is how we can gain our stability. This is how we can gain, gain even our prosperity. So it is a big percentage, a big percentage is supporting the government. It's a, a big percentage. I assure you of that. And um, yeah. unless yeah. unless those who are who are thinking about their individual, uh, you know, interests, this is something else. So I kind of want to bring the conversation back towards, you know, Israel's role in, in, in what's going on. I mean, now now we're in a place where. You know, all of you have expressed very deep, you know, deep and passionate uh, perspectives of each each country's uh, positions, uh, as well as the desire for each country to be sustainable and to live in security. Um, and part of and part of forging and building relationships with Israel in the region is is based on the same you know stability. We're a country that's here. We're strong. We're we're not going anywhere. We seek to be a part of the region, a natural part of the region. Um, I'm kind of going to go somewhere else with this. As as the U.S. 
pulls back from its boots on the ground region where you see less and less American involvement in terms of military intervention or presence here. And that's bipartisan. You know, bipartisan. There's the, the Americans no longer want to fight wars in the Middle East, uh, at least in this period of time. Are there expectations in your countries and, or, or in the Gulf in general that, you know, should something happen vis-a-vis Iran or external threats to the region that Israel uh, could or, or would, would be um, expected to fight alongside your countries uh, or on behalf of your countries to defend the order in the region? Of course, we're, we're taking this, you know, way down the road, certainly with the UAE, and, and we're, we're trying to think ahead, like uh, how... How deep could this relationship be? And Saudi, Saudi Arabia is not there yet, but behind the scenes, we know there's cooperation. We keep, we've heard it in the news. Uh, with the UAE, we know there's been cooperation. Everyone's scared of Iran, right? And, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not afraid. You should be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Iran, Iran is the big threat as far as we're concerned. I know Iran is the biggest threat as far as, as the UAE and Saudi Arabia are concerned. Is there ever, like, could you imagine where, where, Overtly, not just covertly, we're overtly, you can see Israel cooperating militarily with your countries against an Iranian threat. I know. I think, uh, can I just answer this if it's okay with Please, yeah. I think it would. Um, you know, I told, uh, 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 you know, just to tell everybody here, I told uh, Dan earlier that this um, uh, Israeli martial arts, uh, martial arts, um, Kav Magar, you know, like it's. Israel, uh, you know, UAE soldiers are already being been training in in this in this form of martial arts by you know Serbian uh, uh, officers. You know, <laughs> Serbian military has been coming to the UAE training them. I I, I had my trainer who was training me in the gym who was Serbian who was telling me that what he was that's what he was doing. So I was like, oh, I'm sure this is going to happen. So over- there's like a whole class of Serbian Krav Maga instructors in the Serbian, UAE. yeah. Teaching Israeli martial arts to UAE. Yeah, and by the way, we also have a center in Dubai as well. There's a Kabaka center in in Dubai. Just to let you know, you know, you can Google it. You'll find it. They have a website. They have an Instagram account. They have all that. So anyone anyone who wants to learn Krav Maga, I'll be there tomorrow. Happy to teach anybody. Yeah. So so to give you that's just one insight. But of course, in terms of you know, we already know with cybersecurity and so many other different uh, security. Uh, infrastructure in the UAE, we already get a lot of that work with uh, uh, with Israel, and, and we already announced that even the time when the Abraham Accords was announced, everybody saw those contracts being signed by the government. So that's a no-brainer. You know, when the chief of the Mossad was there meeting with Sheikh Tahnoun bin Zaid, where it was it was the head of our national security, we already saw that that was going to happen. So I know that there will be a lot more military probably drills in the future. I can see, I can foresee that. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad, who, you know, God rest his soul, who used to work in the army for over 30 years, used to tell me a lot about how Israeli uh, military uh, capabilities were and everything. So to counter Iran, Iranian threat, I'm definitely sure that, you know, uh, even though the U.S. is withdrawing from the region, Israel would be a, a, a great partner to counter that, uh, that threat from Iran. So I, I don't doubt that at all. Do you think, do you think... Um you could, I mean, there would be blowback because we know, like, for uh, let's go back 30 years and or 40 years now, 30 years, and the world's vastly different now. But you know, when uh, Saddam Hussein was firing rockets on Israel in, in 91, um, you know, is the U.S. had to tell Israel, sit aside and don't 
you know, don't fire back at Iraq because we want to maintain our Arab coalition. And so, I mean, like I'm trying to imagine, Benny was trying to imagine, we talked about this, like if there's a possible future and, and probably not tomorrow, you know, it starts with drills, it starts with this, but you know, God forbid there's, there's some kind of military conflict. I mean, you could see like Israeli soldiers or Israeli jets coming to help the UAE in the Gulf. Like that, that's an insane kind of thought, but I mean, that might be the world we're coming to. Uh, Haisam, you wanted to uh, jump in? Two, two comments. The first comment is regarding Egypt and Israel, since they have a peace and then uh, joint security cooperation has been taking place in Sinai. And actually, most recently, in recent years, we have seen uh, Israel allowed the, the Egyptian army to uh, take over, some, go over, uh, extend its military ba- uh, presence over some areas. According to the peace treaty, uh, Egypt is not allowed to have soldiers there. And this is of combating ISIS and eliminating terrorism uh, in this part. So just this is a little bit of history of some cooperation and some um, uh, acceptance from the Israeli side to help other Arab countries to do that. I think other issue, as I want to mention, is also we all remember a few years ago when uh, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu appeared on CNN and talked openly about stealing his Mossad or his intelligence officers stealing information from the Iranian uh, archives or the Iranian uh, river, you know. And then uh, Bibi said a very famous sentence, and I think the sentence clicked with the Gulf leaders when he said, I'm going to be sharing that with uh, our friends in the region, you know. Uh, so we already have a history and uh, of, uh, of uh, sh- intelligence sharing, uh, collections together, and uh, but uh, military bases and things like that, uh, uh, I cannot comment on that for now. So, I, I so let's take this to kind of the next, uh, maybe a more, you know, um, kind of well abstract area. Yeah, it is abstract. I'll tell you where this started, and 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 then it'll be clear what the topic is. I was going through. Uh, this is going to go a little bit into into American politics right now. I was going through uh, the websites of the Trump uh, re-election and of the Joe Biden campaign. And just for, for those who aren't familiar, the past couple of weeks, we've had a series of episodes digging into the American presidential elections from a Jewish and Israel perspective. I, I thought I, I was this close to thinking that you were about to say, for those who aren't aware, the U.S. is having <laughs> for elections. For those who aren't aware. I, I, I was going to say the same thing, Benny. <laughs> yeah, like you were aware. Uh, no, but but for real, like. The Biden administration has on their website this thing of like all of their different plans that they've outlined plans for every single issue that you could possibly think of. And, and something that struck me as quite interesting was that they had you know, his plan for Jewish, Jewish Americans, his plan for Muslim Americans and his plan for Arab Americans. And I don't think that the reasoning behind doing that was because there are Muslims that are not Arabs. I think that it was something more deep. And I think it has to touch on how. Uh, particularly in the American or Western context and not in the Israeli context, Jews uh, are seen and seen themselves as primarily a a religious identity, whereas Israeli Jews and, and many uh, Zionist Jews in the States and Orthodox, Jews. and Orthodox Jews would see themselves primarily as a national group or an ethnic group, which has a tribal origin and hence has a, a unique religious identity. Uh, so, it was interesting to me, one, to see that he had made this difference because many people in America can't wrap their heads around the fact that there are peoples of tribal origins that have, uh, you know, unique religious identities. But I also wanted to say, like, you know, how how would 
Arabs living in the Middle East or Arabs, uh, you know, Emiratis or, or Saudis or Egyptians um, see that. You know, now now we're going into a, a time where there are more and more open relations with Israel as a, as a, as a member of this of this regional community. Um, you know, do do people in your countries uh, see us, uh, you know, as as a nation, or are we a religion? You know, how are how are Jews perceived? And, and I'll add here, one of the interesting things that was in the Abraham Accords was um, a, a at least explicitly said, you know, the kind of we're talking about we're the children of Abraham, we're the descendants of Abraham. So, you know, when, when we always um, within the Israeli kind of Palestinian context, one of the things that that um, that and if I'm not mistaken, this might have been kind of part of, uh, I don't even want to get into this, but kind of like Marxist propaganda and kind of Palestinian and Marxist propaganda making it to the Western academia, but talking about trying to make Jews uh, a white uh, group, a privileged group, and then a religion as opposed to a people who have a religion. And so there's kind of like two different Jewish peoples today, the ones who see themselves as a people with a religion and the ones who say, no, we're white Americans and we're Jewish. And, um, Curious to know, yeah, we're curious to know how Jews and specifically Israeli Jews are viewed in that sense as far as what the Abraham Accords said. Do, is there an understanding beyond the text of the Abraham Accords saying, oh, you know what? The Israelis, the Jews, they belong in this region with us or is this kind of like a lip service? And then I'd be curious to get into a, a discussion about after, after we talk about this, I'll be curious to get into discussion about Arab identity today among the younger generation and, and kind of like, is there more of an individual sense or is pan-Arabism over and we're now talking about, no, I'm an Egyptian, I'm a Saudi, I'm an Emirati, or is that kind of pan-Arab identity still there? So, so maybe not, a, not a difficult, lengthy question. I want to tell you this. I'll let Najat uh, and Haysom answer this, but there's actually something that's really interesting I want to point out. What is interesting is I'm in the U.S. On the demographic census, there's not even Arab to tick. I have to put either I'm white or something. Uh, they, they told me or Arab other. <laughs> so so the, everybody told me that if you're an Arab in America, you have to tick white. Like, you know, whenever they tell you what, what is your ethnicity or race. No, 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 no. We like, do. You're wrong. You're wrong. Because we're all in Asia. So we're all <laughs> Asians. This is crazy, though, guys. It's ridiculous. Because so, so the problem with whatever Biden said, oh, I have something for Arabs in this. First, fix your census. Then tell us and ask us all those other things and all propose those solutions. So anyways, that's all I wanted to add. There I, is I, I a Arab box in the census in America. We have our own language. We have our own identity. And they need to fix that. So, okay, over to you guys. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, Omar, when I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm first of all Israeli, and I've all I've always said Israelis and, and Israeli Jews were Middle Eastern originally, and me specifically, I have you know an Iraqi background, so we're not white, and and I always hated the fact that that there was no Middle Eastern place on the on anything I filled out college forms all this, so I actually used to either say Asian, <laughs> and I was I would wait for people to see me, or I would write in <laughs> Middle Eastern. <laughs> Sorry, so please, uh, who wants to jump in first? What? Well, who? Hi, Sam. Do you want to go first? Or. <laughs> no, no one wants to take the question. <laughs> okay. Let me tell you now uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, in Saudi Arabia, things are going so, uh, so um, you know, clear 
that it is going geared to Saudi nationalism. Uh, uh, now you will see a lot of Saudis are saying, even in the social media, if you read Arabic, they will say Saudi first, Saudi Arabia first. So when when this kind of concept is, uh, and e even like the whole shift in the country is is geared to that. When you say when you say like now it's more Saudi it's, uh, Saudi nationalism or Saudi first or uh, and I even saw it among Emiratis. Uh, you see a lot of Emiratis are tweeting uh, Emirat awalan, so, uh, you know UAE is first. So what does it mean UAE first means that it is um, it uh, uh, that means the people or countries are looking for for their interests. So it doesn't matter. Like you are Arab or not, as long as we are like aligned together in interest, we, we, we can, we, you can be my ally. Maybe that will take time, but it is starting now. It is, and it's so, it's becoming more and more obvious. So this is, uh, this is what, uh, what I can see. So as long, for example, my interest is with, is with Israel. Why I didn't just uh, break this kind of frozen uh, and undiplomatic relations? Uh, and we can work out together. And I, I mentioned before about uh, Prince Bandar bin Sultan's interview and the outcome of it. And I said, well, now it's, we are in the, uh, and part of the outcome of this, uh, my analysis of this interview is to set the, setting the Arab Gulf doctrine, which is, which, which is political pragmatism. What does it mean, political pragmatism? And instead of, for, for example, let, let me say, uh, this is only analyzing. I'm not giving you a fax. I'm analyzing the situation. Uh, instead of cutting my diplomatic relationships with Israel, why I don't build this relationship Israel in this way? I can even help the Palestinians themselves. And instead of cutting the relations, I can be a, a playing a much more vital role than cutting a, the diplomatic relations. Secondly, and to me, it is the most important Okay, you mentioned about Iran, Dan. You mentioned about Iran. Okay, I believe that Iran, you know, if we want to to constrain its uh, its danger, um, we have to uh, fight it ideologically. How we can fight it ideologically? Because they are playing with this Palestinian-Israeli conflict to spread and promote their ideologies. So if I, when I cut this kind of, uh, you know, tool that they're playing with. Here I'm cutting the spread of ideology. So here I'm winning. Okay. If I might get mm -hmm. the backlash in the beginning, but, uh, but if I'm thinking about it in the long run, I will be winning. Okay. They will call me traitor. They will call me all of these words that we, but if they, at the end, you know, the people will recognize that what I'm doing is right. Okay. Because logically, you, you have used a certain trend for 72 years and you keep losing. So now we have to change. Okay. I'm going to help you if you are serious to solve this problem, unless you want to trade off with this, with this issue. And also I'm going to, you know, I'm going to even serve my interests. So basically diplomatic relationship with Israel is not only helping Israel. It's helping me also helping me to fight this radical ideology and the, to use the, the Palestinian uh, Israeli conflict to 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 you know fulfill their ideologies and to fulfill their political agenda at the same time we are in the same t target like uh, like even if we differ from Israel like religiously or even culturally but if i think about it 
politically, we are in the same path. Okay, the, like the the Israeli uh, government is against uh, Iranian the Iranian regime. Okay, it's it's not really aligned with the Erdogan Turkey. Okay, so when I when I when I, I analyze the the Israeli government, I see it it's aligned with me as a Saudi politically much more than a lot of Arab countries. So why will I cut the relationship with it? Because of uh, what we call Arab brothers who are against my interest. Okay. And at the same time, by cutting this diplomatic relationship, I'm not even helping the Palestinians themselves. But in order to, to elevate the way of thinking to the people to that extent, it might take time. Okay. Uh, you, you know, even in, in a country like Saudi Arabia. Okay, because Saudi Arabia, by the way, is still transforming. You know, we just from the beginning of uh, of MBS ruling, and in, in the beginning we were so preoccupied by by kind of you know a lot of constraints and, and a lot of uh, lack uh, lack of everything. But after the MBS came, he changed the country tremendously. Not only of opening up, but even in the mindset of the people. Because after the Iranian revolution and after the Jihiman attack on the Holy Mosque, Saudi Arabia was completely very, very strict for 40 years. So now in order to change this mindset after 40 years of closing up, it's not easy. Even in the, for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, because all of that was fed up into their, into their brain for more than four decades. Okay. In order to change this mind, mindset, it will take time. You know, some, some, a lot of Saudis now are already changed, but a lot, but a lot of them need also more changes, you know, and it will, thank God we are so blessed to have someone like MBS. Is the direction of, I mean, can we talk about the direction of identities in the Arab world as, as, as then drifting away from, I mean, practically this is the case, but is this happening on kind of like an identity level? If we're talking now as kind of, you know, scholars, if we're talking as, um, you know, a lot, a lot of times I think people like us who have all grown up in one culture and been to others, we have the ability to step outside of ourselves and look at, at identities and, and you know, have multiple identities at the same time. Is, is Can we talk about Arab identity now going in this direction also of being post-Pan-Arab identity? So you're saying the Saudis are able to say, you know what, that hasn't gotten us anywhere. Let's look at what our interests are. Is it going even in a different direction, like past that? Is it even going to a direction of like pan-Arab identities over? It, what does it mean to be Arab anymore? Or am I am I taking this too far? Omar, hi, yeah. you said you wanted to jump yeah, in here. said you wanted to jump in. Do you want to jump, Omar? I was, I was just going to say one small thing. Yeah, please, uh, please. And, and I was going to say that, you know, um, uh, Dan, I think you remember when I said this, you know, I said... In my last symposium, actually with trends, I said, "We, you remember how before here this region we were, or that sorry that region because I'm in the U.S. now, but that region were known as like the Near East. Yeah, they used to call that the Near East. Then we went to the Middle East, and I think now we want to be known as the Modern East. Like we we want to move away from this idea that when you think of the Middle East, the moment you say I am from the Middle East." You just think of one word, chaos. 
Because all around us, whether it's Yemen, you have Iran, you have Syria, Iraq, whatever, it's just chaos, you know? And, and, and uh, uh, it's not even like organized chaos, just unorganized chaos. It's like everywhere, you know? And that, that's, that's the only thing they think of. So for us, يعني, I, what I love about my country, at least in the UAE, in the modern time, where we were like the beacon of hope and prosperity and progress, you know, the tallest building in the world, everything else. However, we do respect and we do love what happened in Egypt back in the time. This Egypt was like at the forefront of so much. Iraq, Iraq was known, you know, with the people used to go to universities in Iraq. People from the West, they didn't have schools or universities there. They used to go and study in, in the Middle East. So we want to go back to that golden era, at least like, but in a different way now, away from this ideology of this Arabism or whatever, but just, peace and progress because in the end of the day really this is what islam teaches us this is what i i believe all religions uh, preach peace in the, uh, in the end of the day so we don't want to have problems with iran or with turkey or whatever when a lot of the times even when we talk about it we just talk about certain individuals on the top but we know their people and we know a lot of their people are amazing even to be honest in saudi arabia you know as dr najatis mentioned you know people who were fed certain ideologies and stuff for so long Maybe some of them are still stuck in that way. But um, I just told you, I have a business in Saudi and my partners are from Saudi. But to be honest, I mean, they went to high school in Lausanne in Switzerland and they went to university in like Northeastern in Boston. So they're like different. So like that's a different crowd of Saudi friends that I have. So now this is what we love. We're going back and we're really happy with, you know, someone like Mohammed bin Salman, you know, uh, and the king uh, working on reforms and everything else. And, Hopefully, this will be the new narrative in the region, and and, and it'll be what what Arab, being Arab is being progressive. Kaisa, I have two comments. Uh, I will start first about the ideology comment. Uh, I really see there is an ideology vacuum in the Arab world. I really like Omar's point about uh, uh, instead of ideology, uh, people should be progressive, thinking about the future and moving on. But um, like when I try to think about a common Arab young Arab, especially, but also I realize the difference between the Gulf and uh, the Arabs not from the Gulf, you know, Damascus, Cairo, Beirut, Baghdad, you know, and uh, I'm really trying to understand these ones outside the Gulf. You know, if you're a young Egyptian growing up in Egypt, in Cairo, in the 60s and the 50s, you have like uh, a geology to believe in, something to mobilize on, you know, something to be running behind, you know, even in the 70s, you have political Islamists are released from prison, you know, and then the doors open for them to preach their ideas and go and confront and have debates, even intellectual debates inside universities. When you read books of the intellectuals or the youngsters back then, you read about the fierce debates that used to exist at the time. Uh, do we have that nowadays? Uh, I, I don't see that. And I think this makes a young Arab who grows up in Cairo. Uh, and I would argue Damascus, Beirut and these countries, aside from the Gulf, I would let Dr. Naget and Omar talk about more. You know, they really feel they are like, they don't have a sense of purpose. They don't understand who they are. From one hand, their countries are struggling economically and socially, so they really don't have a future and they don't have something to look for. And from the other hand, also, uh, if they want to be religious or get to this direction, they will fall uh, into the issue, uh, the ideologies of the political Islamists and they understand their governments are going to be cracking down on them and they have issues with and I'm talking specifically in the Egyptian case you know so they will have issues with that so who, if he's going to ask himself who am I in this world you know who do I associate with you know uh, should I read a couple of books for Lenin and Marcus and be associated with that and still is not going to fulfill uh, what I want because my society wouldn't accept me so I think there is a, 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 an ideology vacuum and 
and the Egyptian case, they are trying to uh, re- reinvent the Egyptian nationalism, but so far it has not been uh, it has not been working. People cannot relate to that. Uh, I will jump into your uh, question about very quickly about your question about the views of Israel Zionism uh, in the Egyptian uh, case. Uh, Dr. Nagat covered it very well uh, in the Gulf perspective. I think I'll use an example and I show the difference. When a young Saudi named Mohammed Saud traveled to Israel a couple of years ago and Posted, created a Twitter account, posted a picture with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and proudly supports Likud, chant every day in Hebrew and talks about Judaism. And even there were uh, American Jews or different Jews from different nationalities traveled to Saudi Arabia and he posted videos with them on Twitter. It went viral. Al Jazeera talked about it. And yeah. everything was. I remember seeing it here. It was like, uh, is this for real? Like, what, what's going on here? But, but there's a significance. Not many people thinking about it. What if an Egyptian did the same? You know, he still was able to go back to Saudi Arabia. I'm sure he's safe. He keeps posting these videos. He talks about it. He hosts Jews in his home and he's open about it all the time, you know, and nothing happened for him. You know, imagine if somebody from Beirut or Baghdad or Cairo did such a thing. What could have happened to him? And this little mm-hmm. example, I'm sure, explains it all to you. The differences between two different cultures and society. Yes, it's still Arabs, the same, but diff- different mentalities and different societies, cultures and things like that. In the Egyptian case, I think another challenge is, I think, intellectuals and, you know, yes, the CC, President CC talks positively about uh, relations uh, with Israel a little bit. I wouldn't say directly. Uh, he even uh, uh, praised the Abraham Accords. So then just signed a peace normalization. He also praised it in Arabic and in English. Uh, but I think the major issue, and I call it the remnants of the Mubarak era, there are intellectuals who are remnants of the Mubarak era who are very anti-Israel and still not convinced CC uh, legitimacy or the Egyptian regime legitimacy or the mobilization of the Egyptian public should be centered around only political Islam or issues related to of terrorism. They, they, they still believe there are bigger issues that should be uh, injected into the, the Egyptian mindset in order to mobilize the public. And I think Israel should, in their minds, is still filling this gap, you know, uh, especially after a few years, you know, the regime succeeded to crack down on Islamists. They are all exiled or in jail. Uh, you have terrorism decreased tremendously in the country. So if they look for something to mobilize the public around, what could it be? You know, so still Israel is this gap. So I think if they want to do something, they have to re- rethink new ideas. And instead of just mobilizing the public around an enemy, it should be mobilizing a public like that. I like Omar when he said that we are all mobilized around uh, progress, peace, tolerance, moving on for the future and a bright future. But but United Arab Emirates small country, has lots of money because of oil. In the Egyptian case, they don't have that. So this is a big challenge for them. What could they do? And I think this is a challenge they have to think about it. Uh, I, so, yeah. I, I like what you said, Haysam. Can I just add one thing? You know, you know, guys, one of the things that's common in whether you look at the, the Levant region, the Arab world, or even in the Gulf, the one thing that came up is youth unemployment. It's a major issue. Right now, that's all that the youth care about because you have a huge youth population in this region. And one of the things that all of us have in common, even for us in oil producing countries, because, you know, look what happened in Saudi Arabia. They just tripled the VAT over there. You can see it's 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 a it's a huge issue. So and, and, and you know, even with Oman as well, Oman, our neighboring country, we did not think that there's so many youth. I have so many cousins looking for jobs now in Oman. So it's a huge issue. So the one thing that we all have in common right now, whether it's this part of the Arab world or the other half of the Arab world or in North Africa, 
is employment, youth unemployment. We need to tackle that issue. That's the core issue of our problem right now. That's the major ideology. So if Arabs mean that we can support each other and build on entrepreneurship, you know, innovation, tech, etc., and, you know, uh, build those capabilities, that's what we're going to be truly proud about being Arabs. So look, you, you've, all, you've all said so um, many... So you want to say one, one thing? Yes, I want to say uh, one thing, um, just a small points. Um, the first point that I want to uh, talk about is, um, is basically I'm afraid that there will come a day that people will be actually conflicting with the Palestinians more than the Israelis one day. Uh, why I'm saying that? Because what I can see through the Palestinians, um, like um, in general, I'm talking, not everybody, um, they're not... They couldn't, uh, they couldn't recognize the changes that are happening in the Arab world. Like what Omar says and Haysam said. Now people are thinking progr- pro- progressively and thinking about uh, how to modernize, how to think about their employments, how to change. And they are still thinking, even the younger, their younger generations are thinking about the older way of thinking. The Nasriyat way of thinking and the, the same, they are using the same slogans which doesn't affect at all the younger generations now. So this is the main clash and this shows you that things are progressing because, because you know, they're going certain way and we're going to, uh, to the other way. We want more development. We want to progress uh, t- technologically, educationally, and they're still thinking about slogans and, uh, you know, how to, uh, you know, wipe out Israel, the same slogans back in the, uh, in the 60s. So this is the, cl- the, the differences in way of thinking currently. The other thing that shows you that things are, uh, are different like I would say that still with, with the all the progress that we have in the Arab Gulf drama, still the Egyptian drama is influential. Okay, because because the actors, because the history, the history of movies in Egypt is much more sophisticated than the Arab Gulf because of the, you know they have been to into this field years ago. So uh, like a couple of years ago, when Rafat al Hajjan is a drama serial that was played. In, uh, in the Arab uh, countries, it will, it has a huge impact in the Arab world. And it was basically, you know, with this kind of propaganda, you know, uh, you know, about Israelis and the, and Israel and the hostilities uh, that was uh, spread. And it did, it did have, uh, did have an impact on the Arab world, especially on Saudi Arabia, because the people spend a lot of time watching TV. Okay. And also the movies. Like, uh, for example, there's a famous actress, um, 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 uh, Egyptian actress called Nadia Jindi. She played a couple of movies like Mohammed and Tel Abib and, uh, and other kind of movies. It did have, it did have an impact on the, on the, on the Arab, uh, on the Arab region in general. Because, because in the, when you say Arab movies, usually 90% you say it, it is actually Egyptian. Right. And, uh, and a lot of Saudis watch it. But now, like uh, the recent, when I compare though the impact of those old movies to the uh, to the new ones, like for example, Al Mamar that was uh, that was played uh, the, that was um, in the movies in the movie the, uh, in the movie theaters back in 2019, and Al Nihaya, it's also a drama serial that that was played this this Ramadan. Okay, it didn't have the same impact. It, people even criticized it said, what the heck, you're still talking at the same mentality? You're still using the same scenario that you used back in the 60s? So it didn't have the same strong impact that the other old movies have. 
And from there, you can tell the difference in the region. Hmm. Okay, that it is really moving forward. People started to laugh at it. I love what Dr. Najat mentioned because, you know, in Ramadan, the last Ramadan, it was epic. In Saudi Arabia, in Saudi Arabia, they have this amazing actor called Nasr Qasabi. And they have... <laughs> exit 7, Exit 7. Yeah. Yes, Exit 7. Is a, and, and it was amazing because his son, so Nasr's son, was actually uh, playing video games, uh, something like one of those, like, like Minecraft or something, with, a, with another kid in Israel. So this Israeli kid was friends with him. And then in the scene, you can see like the the, uh, the father was like uh, upset. But actually his his father-in-law, so Nasser's father-in-law uh, was kind of cool with it. He was like, so what if he has a friend in Israel, you know, and whatever. But that guy was like, oh, but there are enemies. He was like, no, they didn't do anything to us. And, you know, we didn't have. So this was in Saudi, sit- like this sitcom right now in Ramadan. So I was like, I know it's going to happen with with Saudi Arabia. The I actually thought maybe the announcement was going to happen between Saudi Arabia and Israel before the UAE, to be honest. So basically what you're saying is when it does happen, you're going to go back to that point when you were watching that TV show is the moment that you knew. Yeah, and then that absolutely. was it. So I have to, yeah, I, I have to say, and then, and then we'll kind of start wrapping up here. Um, well, first, Omar, you have to go soon. We know you have an appointment and our yes. technical issues delayed you. So um, if you had something to say and leave us and then we'll, we'll go to our two other guests here. Uh, for for the same question, um, are you optimistic? Yeah. You, you seem like an optimistic guy. Are you optimistic about? Um, certainly, I, I think you, you'd be very optimistic about the UAE. But are you optimistic about the future of the region right now? Um, wh- where do you see things going? And kind of, you know, before you have to leave us for your next appointment, um, wh- where do you see the region going? Look, if you have President Sisi, you have. Mohammed bin Salman, you have Sheikh Mohammed Zaid, like these main ones, of course there are others, you have these three, we're going to be more than optimistic. If there's another word over that, then yes, I'm going to, this is, this is my opinion, okay? And I, I and, uh, and in terms of, you know, the, the relationships and everything else, look, I only have to warn you guys in Israel about one thing. Emiratis, they are quite the charmers. So they're going to come there and charm your women. And so hold on to your women. That's all I can say. Because already now, some of the Israeli women that went, they were all given marriage proposals. And this is what I heard. So I, you know, I can tell you that. So I would, I would say something about Israeli women right now to counter that about what you guys might not want to do. But my wife's listening to this right now. So I'm going <laughs> to... Israeli women are really tough. Just put a key yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard, I heard. We don't. But anyways, no, but it's, honestly, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of opportunities, I think, that can happen from a business perspective, from a social perspective. And uh, th- these things that we see right now, the, you know, the, all these agreements announced just by the government and semi-government, what you're going to see on the ground that will happen between the two people is far more. And, and people like you, Dan and Benny, thank you so much for having a podcast like this. I told you, I listened to so many of your episodes uh, while I'm sitting at home. And uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, you guys are going on the right path. Thank you, guys. And hey, Sam and Najat, like, I love these two. Like, honestly, <laughs> I love them. I, I just want to, like, sit down and have separate conversations with them. So thank we you. Should. For- and we're, and we're going to continue these conversations in the uh, policy forum that uh, the, four of, the four of us, sorry, Benny, uh, are a part of. 
You're not a policy guy. What can I tell you? Uh, but we were, we're going to be the mascot. I could just like you show could. up and, you know, we could, you, I could like, you know, bring drinks <laughs> and food no, and but we're gonna barbecue. Be, I have a feeling that through this forum, we're going to be hosting a lot of podcasts here. So Omar, whenever you have to go, feel free because I know, I know you have your appointment and you and me, we're going to write that book, the modern East man. That's going to be, uh, our bestseller. Hi, some, hi, some, you had a comment and then, uh, so th- thank you so much, Omar. And hi, some, you, you, you had a comment and then, um, w- are you optimistic? Do you see yourself going back to Egypt? Uh, are you optimistic about the region as a whole? Uh, give us your take. Hopefully it's optimistic, but uh, but your honest take would be better. Okay. No, no. Honestly, I think I'm optimistic since uh, last August. You know, if you asked me before August, I wouldn't uh, say I'm optimistic because I see nothing changing. You know, destruction, uh, countries are uh, being uh, collapsing and governments are struggling. No, I think uh, I'm very optimistic about the future, especially uh, the peace deal that sweeping peace deals that sweeping across the region. Uh, but I want to mention something and I want to play with the idea because I like Please. Dr. Nagel point about the Palestinians, you know, that she's afraid the next conflict is going to be with the Palestinians. I think, yes, initially, you know, it will be with the intellectuals and the politicians from the Palestinian side, because he still cannot process what's happening around them in the region, but they will struggle with uh, the different opinions that are going to be sweeping or going across the streets. And I will give you a little bit of an example. You know, we all heard about the Arab joint list when they opposed the, the deal uh, between Israel and its Arab neighbors in the Knesset. Yeah. You know, uh, yes, who, who, who elected them? Uh, yeah, I, was, Arab, I was in shock, by the way. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes me, too. me too. But actually, it was interesting. Two, two interesting things. The reports were said there were some people inside the Arab Jordan list, some Knesset members, you know, were opposing that. Uh, and others were not, you know, but at the end of the day, they had to unify themselves yeah. and go uh, that direction. I think they did that while the Arab-Israeli street, or as they identify themselves, Palestinian citizens of Israel, you know, are so excited about the peace deal and yeah. happy, and they start to see the fruits of it because for the first time, an Arab citizen of Israel, soccer player, goes to the United Arab Emirates, plays for a master club, and everybody cheering for him. They follow him on Instagram, and they see the post he posts about uh, Dubai and living there and the luxurious lifestyle there, you know, and the many opportunities are going to be coming up with that. You know, many Arab-Israeli students study electric engineering Engineering, uh, uh, the study in high tech technologies, you know, and all these kinds of things. The Technion, look how many of them are, are Arab Israeli students there, yeah. you know. Yeah. I'm sure many of them are going to be looking for opportunities. So I think, yes, at the beginning, you will have some uh, politicians or intellectuals from Palestinian city of Israel or Arab citizen of Israel, you know, are going to say no to that. But right away, the local population and the local public are going to see the fruits of that and they're going to stand up and be different. Even I'm trying to imagine when United Arab Emirates has, will have an embassy soon in Tel Aviv, look at the amount of uh, Arab Israeli or even Palestinians in the West Bank are going to be flocking around the embassy and trying to get donations, trying to get uh, ideas to help with, with the private sector, high-tech entrepreneurship and all of these things. And how is that going to be reflected on their socio-economic lifestyles? You know? And this is going to make the Public go in a different direction than the politician and the intellectuals, and I'm sure the politician and the intellectual by then will have to will find themselves having to adjust their views. And by a way or another, I think Palestinians are not going to be like going the aggressive direction we see now. Just I'm trying to re- read yeah. in the, into the future, yeah. not how going to work, but I'm just trying to read into it. Thank you, thank you, Najat. Uh, would you care to offer maybe a last comment? Your kind of vision of the future? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Um, where do you see things going? I'm very optimistic. 
uh, I'm optimistic because uh, I can see the people and the leaders are now, you know, thinking realistically and thinking pragmatic, uh, pragmatic uh, in a pragmatic w way. Uh, the other thing that is making me optimistic, because um, before I know a lot of people were were like like uh, you know trying to be apologists to mistakes. Okay, like through the interview, especially when the, after the interview of Prince Bandar bin Sultan, he said that we there are a lot of things I was quiet about it, but I couldn't say it. Now he said it. The fact that he said he, he said that that means things are changing. Okay, and the other thing, the other thing, the most important thing, uh, after this Abraham Accord, people, you know, we, you know, we we always been asked, where are the moderate Arabs? Where are the liberal Arabs? Why they are not speaking up? Okay, because we are afraid. Okay, if I talk what I'm talking right now, I will be called a traitor. My life might might be in threat. Like like Haysom, you know, why we didn't see Haysom like before? Why now he's encouraged? You know, and I'm sure there are a lot of Arabs who who have the his same his same opinion, but they are afraid. And the more Arab countries are gonna make this kind of peace treaty, the more Arabs are gonna are gonna be speaking up. Like me, for example, I was before writing subtly because I was pro this piece years ago, but I couldn't write in the same way that I'm writing right now. After this Abraham Accord, now I can write courageously, you know, openly. Now I don't need to write in that subtle way and covering up. So that's why I'm very optimistic, you know, but the, the only thing that is making me quite not pessimistic, but, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, the, the conflict that might happen. Because whenever you're trying to transform something from one perspective to another, okay, definitely there will be backlash. Definitely there will be people who are against it. Because you're talking about things that have been in the region for ages, okay? And now you want to open a new page and new way of thinking. And, uh, you know, and uh, you want to throw out those kind of outdated ideologies and build a new kind of pragmatic way of thinking that that won't be an overnight thing. It will take time yeah. and people will try. Some people will try to resist it. Yeah. OK, so the only thing that I'm worried about, like, for example, if we want to think about the Palestinian Israeli conflict, the Palestinians will uh, those who are trying to resist it might try to resist it, you know, by slogans or might try to resist it actually by doing things like, you know, fighting with the Iranians against us, fighting with Erdogan, for example, against us. And they, they are doing that, but maybe they will do it much more openly. OK, because whenever you're in something, you have to think about all the probabilities. And there are a lot of, you know, big chance of them doing that if they're not thinking realistically and in pragmatic way, they might do it. And, you know, so here the conflicts will be, in, in you know, internally I wanna, I wanna... in order to, you know, in order to convince people, you know, uh, it will take time. So here we have to play it smart through the soft power, through diplomacy through media and media, both hard talk, soft talk, drama, movies, everything. everything. We have to we have to use everything in order to uh, education system. Of course, everything, all the stuff we have to to energize our soft power in every in every field and even in both languages, Arabic, English, because also, mind you, the Western media is not helping us. 
as yeah. as open-minded uh, you know and uh, you know as a new kind of generation new thoughts of arabs they you know the the leftiest uh, media and the liberal media is working against us because they have their, not because they are pro islamist or pro uh, arab nationalism because they have their own political agenda and those people are helping them you know but this is in our own expense so that's why we have to work and from all perspectives from the you know in the arab side and in the western side both together in order so it there will be challenges but with regardless of these challenges i'm still optimistic let very me, optimistic let, let me ask you this because i'm i'm like we're having a very lengthy conversation and all of a sudden at this very last moment, like it kind of clicked in, in my head a little bit watching you speak about this, uh, this point exactly. Like you've kind of, and I, Dan and I live here. Okay. And we, we grew up when we were younger in the States and like the last thing we think of is like, okay, if I say this, there may be implications on my family, you know, there may be implications on my, on my well being or my life. Like, okay, now, nowadays there's like cancel culture and whatnot. And like, maybe like I, I won't get the job or something. And maybe it can be worse than that is if, if, if time goes by, but you know, I can't imagine what it is like for somebody to, to almost be like closeted about their opinions in such a way. And then these sorts of, you know, giant wheels start moving and, 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 and old, uh, you know, things that are stuck start start unsticking and it's like in in many ways like do you do you feel like it's liberating for you like do you feel li- like liberating like in a way like okay i can i can i i don't have to be anonymous i can i can do you feel there's like a huge is there like a release of almost bo- of both of yeah, you yeah a big big release big release after this abraham accord i'm feeling i can breathe before I was like, uh, you know, I couldn't, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I don't write in Arabic these thoughts. I write it in English and subtly, imagine. And when I write it in English, I couldn't publish it in mainstream media. I go to conservative media to publish it because I, I know the mainstream media maybe won't publish it. So I was so, so cautious, so cautious because this is very, very sensitive issue. I couldn't uh, like be just open about it because I know I will be misunderstood. Nobody will t- take my opinion that I am patriotic and I care about the region and I wanted to p- do, to be progressive and I wanted to think out of the box. I know what they will be th- saying. There's the same slogans. So yes, now I'm feeling a big release. Now what I'm saying, the governments are saying. Now the, what I'm saying, the leaders are saying. So I'm not saying something out of the blue or something uh, taboo or something like uh, I'm being not being, uh, you know, I'm not being loyal citizen or something. No, that's why it is a big release. Definitely. Yes. Amazing. Definitely. Yes. Amazing. So this has been uh, uh, an incredible uh, panel for us, an incredible kind of juanced experience. Um, and, and we thank you for enriching us with some juanced uh, over here. Can, can, can we find an Arabic equivalent for the word juanced? <laughs> How do you say nuance in Arabic? What what would be the Arabic word for nuance? I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> so our ne- our next project, and we're going to continue this conversation offline. We're going to come up with the Arabic because because juanced is a, a portmanteau. Um, so we're going to come up with the Arabic equivalent of juanced. By the way, we were we were trying to talk before we went on air. It, what would be the Jewish equivalent of an Islamist? And we came up with Yehudist. <laughs> so we would have a Yehudist <laughs> would be like the, the Jewish equivalent of Islamists. So now our goal uh, 
and we'll get Omar back and maybe all any of our friends who uh, Arab friends, uh, if we can come up with the Arab word for Arab nuance, uh, maybe we can figure out a way to take this podcast uh, into the Arab world. Um, we thank you guys so much. Um, this has been uh, really, really a pleasure. And uh, for those who for those who started out the podcast and actually made it past the technical difficulties at the beginning, we we thank you all for your patience. Um, any? Well, I would just say like it's just it was a pleasure having a conversation that was about the region of the world that we all live in that was optimistic and and, and through other perspectives that we don't usually get to hear, and we hope that we will get to hear a lot more of these perspectives soon. And um, I, I, I'm hopeful for the day. Najat, you said you have to be courageous. And uh, hi, some, you know, you had to be courageous when you came here to, to study. I, I can't wait for the day when you guys can just say things that are, forget positive, just normal about Israel, and, and you don't have to be courageous to do it. It's just a normal thing. And, um, and, and you know, hopefully that day will come sooner than later. So, Haysam uh, Hassanin and Dr. Najat Al Said and uh, Omar Al Busaidi, who was with us and had to go, and Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, Flur Hassan Nahum, who was with us for the beginning. We thank you guys so much for joining us on this episode of Juanced. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.